The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. You're listening to season two of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, we zoom in on the unsung and sometimes underloved film subgenres you forgot you loved. Drama, comedy, suspense, that's so five minutes ago. For our second season of Subgenre, our lens is focused on movies that celebrate those easygoing, light-fingered protagonists you just can't help but root for. Call them gentlemen bandits, dapper safecrackers, or tuxedoed gamblers. We'll just call them charming thieves. In this episode of season two, we're taking a trip back into the modems and floppy disks of the 1990s hacker culture for a techie, funny, multiple heist movie starring a cast that's so top tier it would break any film budget. And that crew is led by arguably the most handsome and charming burglar in the business. That's right, it's Mr. Sundance, Robert Redford, in this time capsule film directed and co-written by action comedy filmmaker Phil Alden Robinson. Let's induce some homomorphisms with this 1992 puzzler. Today we're talking about sneakers. And joining me in the brand new Studio K is somebody that we just can't get enough of here on Subgenre. She is a veteran of our first season. Uh, she's the host and producer of her own show, the world-famous Art Curious Podcast, and is the author of the book Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. And she's the most beautiful girl I know. It's my wife, Jennifer Dassel. Welcome back to Subgenre, Jen. Hi. I also feel like there's a little bit of nepotism going on here. There's if, tons of nepotism. Because you can't get rid of me. I live in this house. Truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you here nonetheless. Thanks. And I'm happy to have you here so soon after I got to talk to you previously, which subgenre listeners, if you've been keeping track, our first episode of this new season was on a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, the remake of it, the Pierce Brosnan movie from 1999. If you have not listened to that episode yet, you don't have to listen to it before this one, but yeah, go listen to it first and then come back. Because right after that episode, Jen was kind enough to join me in studio to to talk about the art inside that film and stealing art and all kinds of other fun things about the Thomas Crown Affair. We may have mentioned it in that little bonus content that uh, we brought everybody, but this idea for Charming Thieves being the subject of Subgenre Season 2 was actually your idea. And I don't remember suggesting it, so yay, I'm glad I did, but uh, yeah, I'll take credit now. And also number two, the reason why you just ended up having to do Sneakers with me is, full disclosure, Sneakers is a go-to family film. Oh, yeah. We have seen it, gosh, dozens of times. Yeah, multiple, multiple dozens. So it makes sense that we're sitting here talking about it. We would talk about it anyway if the microphones weren't on. And so why not talk about it when they are? Well, then let's dive right into it. So Sneakers is about this team of crack security professionals who are basically blackmailed into stealing this top secret item that's wanted by the government and also the entire crime world at large. It was released in September 1992 by Universal Pictures, and it had a budget of $23 million, but it grossed more than $100 million worldwide. 23 mil 
for what this movie ended up being in terms of cast is an insanely low amount. So it was directed by Phil Alden Robinson, who is probably best known for Field of Dreams. And it was produced by the team of Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks, both of whom worked on Awakenings, but also uh, Parks, I believe, worked on Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report. Both of them producing those movies. They're a writing team as well, and they were... I think co-credited writers on this film along with Phil Alden Robinson and Lasker and Parks wrote War Games. If you've ever seen War Games. It feels like those are two sides of the same coin almost. Interesting stories that are both sharing a lot of the same DNA. One is super 80s and this one is super 90s. Tech driven, uh, government's going to get you movies. Absolutely. This is where we get into the nuts part, the cast, because it is incredible. As you mentioned at the very beginning, of course, it stars Robert Redford, who most people might know from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men and basically a lot of movies. Then there's a little-known actor named Sidney Poitier. Little-known. Little-known mm-hmm. from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night. And then more little-known actor like Ben Kingsley. Sure. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Gandhi, uh, Schindler's List, uh, you know, all those movies. No, this, these are people who are top-tier, big marquee names and all of them stuffed together in this film, among others who we will talk about soon as well. And um, I think we would be remiss if we didn't say that we are recording this only a couple of weeks or so after Sidney Poitier died. So um, RIP, amazing man. And also recording this in the year of, what is this, the 30th anniversary of the release of this movie? This is the 30th anniversary. So this fall technically will be exactly 30 years. But yeah, because this was a 1992 movie. That seems impossible. I know. It also makes me feel super old. That's because we are super old. true. Well, let's finish up this setup here because there's a couple of other things I want to mention as well. Just number one, the shooter, John Lindley, who creates some really beautiful imagery, I think, in this film is a regular with Phil Alden Robinson. They did Field of Dreams together. They would do some of All Fears together after that. The score in this movie uh, is just great. We'll talk about it in the course of everything, I'm sure, but it's composed by James Horner, who, of course, did movies like Titanic and Apollo 13 and Braveheart and God knows what else. And the one that I had to go look up, but I'm glad I did, was the production design on this because the production design on this movie, I think, makes the film a lot of the time in terms of making it feel this combination of techie and non-techie and of its time and timeless and the production designer on it, Patricia von Brandenstein. That is an amazing name. Who did some amazing films, but maybe at the top of all of that was the production designer on a little film called Amadeus. Oh my gosh. Let's take all of that in total. You've got this director, this producer-writer package, all of these stars, all the co-stars we will mention, the music by James Horner, uh, von Brandenstein working on the production design, and the fact that we managed to make this thing for 23 mil, and it has turned into arguably a lasting favorite for a lot of people. It's a cool package, and I'm glad we are able to talk to it today. Like we said, it's one of our favorite films. We're not going to hide that, but we will be fair about it as we go through and talk. Will we? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> but let's talk about it anyway. And that brings us to our feature presentation. In our feature presentation today, we are talking about the 1992 heist comedy 
action drama suspense film it's kind of an uncategorizable film uh it's sneakers all the things. it's all the things and uh it is going to be as we start into our feature presentation here the second film of this season i think that i'm going to start by talking about the credit sequence oh yeah i was actually thinking about this when we were talking about thomas crown in our bonus episode because there's that little link where the letters swap around and so it really gives you that sensation of the art being switched. Yeah, it's, pla- so it it's planting. Yeah, it's planting. And that's exactly what's happening here as well. Yeah. In the opening sequence of sneakers, you get anagrams. I think the first words that appear on screen are a turnip cures Elvis, which immediately resolves itself into universal pictures. <laughs> a few it. astral clerks repel Newark becomes Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks. Blonde rhino spaniel becomes Phil Alden Robinson. And then, of course... Fort Red Border. Robert Redford. Robert Redford. My man. So you get this immediate foreshadowing, I guess, plant planting foreshadowing as to what this movie is going to turn on, which is puzzles, anagrams, things not being what they seem. It's just a really well done title sequence. And not to mention, it introduces both types of music that we're going to get throughout this entire film through the saxophone, soprano saxophone, I'm guessing, of Branford Marsalis. Mm -hmm. It seems like a sitting in a library studying coffee shop sound that you start with, which gives this cool, laid-back feeling to the piece, but it's also a little tense somehow. And playful at moments, too, which is really fun. Yeah. Now, it's amazing how that one instrument can be used to relay all kinds of different emotions and really tee up so many different scenes in this film. And it's built around just that little set of notes, the da-da-da-da-da. And it just gives you this mood of something is going to happen, something is interesting, something playful. And then it, it resolves itself after establishing that mood into just straight out blues, which plays into that a little down and out, a little worn shoe leather, a little, I don't know, just some feeling that isn't an Ocean's Eleven, that isn't something like that. It's different. It's not as polished. As we're starting to talk about this movie, too, I'm going to assign us both anagram names. I plugged our names into an anagram <laughs> generator. So for the duration of this, you can refer to me as DJ's Alohas. DJ's Alohas. As in the DJs are telling you Aloha. Sure. And I can refer to you as Federal Ninjas. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I accept. <laughs> All right. So uh, DJ's Alohas and Federal Ninjas are starting with this film in December of 1969. Uh, it's snowing outside. You've got these two grad students at probably what is something like an MIT who are sitting in a computer lab, which at the time would have been not many of those around. These are both pranksterish, idealistic grad students. So what are they doing? They're hacking. Uh, it's what it's what you do when you got a lot of brains and, and not a lot of uh, stuff to do besides get into trouble. So what are they hacking? They're hacking the Republican National Committee and donating their money to the Black Panthers. They're hacking Richard Nixon's personal account and giving his money to the uh, Committee for the Legalization of Marijuana. <laughs> right. So good. And who are the two people doing this? It is our two main characters to start with, a young Martin Bryce, Mm -hmm. uh, played at this point by an actor named Gary Hirschberger, and a young Cosmo. And I don't know that we're ever given his last name. I always want to call him Cosmo Kramer, and that's not right. (laughs) Ron Cosmo. Ron Cosmo. But uh, played in this scene by an actor called Joe Marr. They're playing the two younger versions of our leads. They're trying to change the world. (laughs) Yeah. At least as far as Cosmo is saying out loud. Their goal here is to change the world, power to the people 
people right on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they are doing the 1969 thing. They're just doing it in a high tech way. Yeah. And in doing that, what happens? You get hungry. So while you are hacking and sending money from one place to another that doesn't belong to you, you need a pizza. Well, who's going to have to go out in the snow and get the pizza? They do a little, you know, which hand is the coin in trick, you know, that Cosmo knows. Mm -hmm. And uh, Martin Bryce picks the wrong hand, the empty hand. Sure. And is volunteered then to have to go out in the snow and go get the pizza, which we soon find out it's a magic trick. There's no coin. The coin is gone. The coin is gone. There is no coin in either hand. And Mm -hmm. so it was a ruse all along. But it ends up being something that works very well, unfortunately, in Marty's favor and not in Cosmo's because that just happens to be the time in which the cops roll on up. And so Cosmo gets caught. FBI is there on the scene two seconds after uh, Marty is out the door. And so he has a choice. And what does he do? He can either go back in and give himself up and maybe save Cosmo, I don't know, or he can run. And he chooses the latter. Which I think is really interesting. And we can get into this a little bit more later, but this is such a character trait that most characters that Robert Redford plays wouldn't actually do. So I think it's really interesting for him to be in this role as somebody who chose the cowardly path, really. Cosmo sees him run away. And he yells and screams and tries to get his attention. He tries, I think, to probably get the FBI's attention towards him as well. But Marty gets away. And so ends the setup for the backstory that this movie is going to operate from. So where do we go from here? Well, it's years later. An older Marty, we know that because they look very similar. The (laughs) actor that they got, Gary Hirschberger, to play Marty in the first one, he wakes up and he is in what appears to be a truck or a van next to a very stately-looking, FBI-looking, cop-looking man named Crease, played by Sidney Poitier. Can we also talk about how wonderful Sidney Poitier is in that everybody calls him Marty, except for for Sidney Poitier's character who calls him Martin. Martin. Just very crisp and professional like Martin. And the difference in names is going to come into play here in just a second as well, right? That's true. So older Marty is now there with Crease in whatever this truck van thing is. They are in there with a third person sitting uh, somewhere off behind them with a headset on. And this is a character named Whistler, played by the actor David Strathairn, who I love, who could be in anything at any time, and I will watch it. Same. And this was my first introduction to his work. I was, oh goodness, a preteen when this movie came out. So this was really the first time I got to see him. And I can't think of him as anything other than Whistler. Whistler, we see very soon, is blind. And we know this because he is reading a magazine and when he flips it closed in braille braille yes yes. the braille version of an issue of playboy which is (laughs) hilarious i had no idea such a thing existed but apparently well they read it for the articles right so So he is sitting there with a headset on using the sense that i think is most developed for whistler his sense of hearing to listen to some other people on the team the nearest of which is a character by the name of Mother, played by, surprisingly to me when I first saw this movie, Dan Aykroyd. And he's down in this manhole. They're basically testing communication lines, but then he is a conspiracy theory deep nut who has all of these ideas about cattle mutilations and NASA faking the moon landings, stuff like that. This is back when conspiracy theories were fun and not crazy. <laughs> right. Uh, right. This is, this is back when that was a fun thing to do. But he is. He's got theories about everything in the world. He sends most of those theories back against Kreese, who we find out through him has been part of the CIA, was fired from the CIA at one point under mysterious circumstances, but uh, is always trying to get him to 
fess up to things like the CIA being involved in the earthquake in Managua in 72. Right. (laughs) They're the perfect foil for one another, I think. The reason Whistler is listening so hard is because as Mother is testing all of these communication lines, he is listening for the right tone when the lead is, is attached to the wire, he hears it, he finds what he's listening for. When they clip on to the one that, that Whistler has found for them, it overrides a master alarm system inside a bank that they are sitting in a truck in front of. And outside that bank to start with, uh, Marty and Kreese run across the street. They get into position next to the last of the characters of this team that we're going to be introduced to, the youngest member named Carl. Was played by River Phoenix. River Phoenix. Not the last role, I believe, but one of the last before he passed. And just plays this overeager, young hacker with very little else going on in life and a little clueless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clueless that when Marty and Crease show up outside the bank to break into it with him, he has grease painted himself up as if he's going in as a Navy SEAL, but has gone a little overboard and is now in blackface. Yeah. I would say one of my very favorite parts out of a movie filled with favorite parts is just that second glance that Sidney Poitier does, just looks at him and you can tell he's like, what are you doing? Oh my God. There's no mention of it. There's just a look by Sidney Poitier and it's perfect. And then Robert Redford does it right after, too, but very different. That one is more jokey, but Sidney Poitier's look is priceless. So they're outside the bank. The alarm has been taken offline by what's being done uh, down in the manhole. Inside the bank, there is a safe deposit box that has been, uh, we find out, taken out by Marty at some point. Mm-hmm. And inside of it, there is a smoke bomb that goes off. Smoke fills part of the bank. It uh, sounds off a fire alarm which scares the hell out of the guard on duty, played by Bodie Elfman. Fire alarm freaks him out. So what does he do? He finds the manual, which tells him what to do, and he calls in the fire. But who answers the fire alarm? It's not the guy down at the fire station that you would think it would be. It would actually be Whistler, who has intercepted the call. Which is one of the first tropes of these sort of heist movies of sorts that we will see in other films and that we just saw in part in the Thomas Crown Affair. The same thing happens when the guard in the Impressionist Gallery, the criminals come down and say, you can call upstairs and check if you like. We're supposed to be here. He makes a phone call and one of the criminals has tapped into the line and answers pretending to be the higher ups. Same trope applied here. But the reason it's applied is because it works. Yeah. And so we've got all three of our break-in artists who, while Whistler is on the phone with him saying, ah, don't worry, it's a, we've had fire alarms in your area, it's going to reset, just hang on. While they're doing that, our team is running through part of the darkened bank to get to the circuit box so they can turn off the alarm and make the ruse seem correct. And running to get there, when Robert Redford leaps over the counter, uh, <laughs> he takes a header off of this. It's terribly funny to watch in the film. And you go, oh, man, that's great. That wasn't intentional. I didn't know that. Oh, no. That was an accident during shooting. And it was so damn funny that they kept it in the film. Oh, my gosh. No, I thought that was completely written in. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. No, it looks like he kills himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, he was, what, approaching 60, 55 at the time when this movie was made. So, yeah, I mean, and then he immediately plays it off as, you know, I'm too old for this, which is very true. Yeah. Which is also something I think is interesting is that I heard Phil Alden Robinson talk about this, how he never pictured Robert Redford 
Redford in the role. He thought it would be somebody who was younger, at least by 10 years. And it changed the movie so much for the better. Yeah. And that's that's where we were talking, I think, earlier, too, about, you know, setting the tone with the music and stuff like old shoe leather is what this movie is. Mm -hmm. These are guys that have been around for a while. They've done some stuff. They're probably past their prime. They're definitely past their prime. All of them except Carl. Who maybe won't ever have a prime like this. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, there's there's something about the, you know, we're too old for this stuff dynamic that works for this film. Yeah, totally. So they get to the uh, alarm box. They turn the alarm off. Finally, the guard is put at ease. Okay, no big deal. And now that they're in the bank, it gives Bishop and Crease a chance to get on a terminal to, you know, find a couple of bank accounts and say, okay, how much money do you want? (laughs) So the next morning, apparently, we have Marty stepping into the same bank, this time as a customer, and walking himself up to the teller, withdrawing the $100,000 from his account, which is counted out in those big stacks and put into a briefcase with the explanation of, I just don't feel like my money is safe here anymore. (laughs) So great. So what does he do? Does he take the money and he walks out to the van and they drive off into the sunset and spend it? No, No. it looks like he will. But instead, he takes a left turn and heads up some stairs. And he goes directly to this meeting room, you know, kind of overlooking the bank on the second floor. And he starts throwing the money out on the table, basically saying, here's your problems. Here's why your bank isn't safe. Yep. First, who's got my check? <laughs> this is where we revealed what's going on, is that he is not a thief per se. Mm-hmm. Um, may have been. But he is a security consultant who does what they call sneaking, finding loopholes, finding security flaws, breaking into your bank, um, or as the the lady who is cutting his check later says, so people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's what he does. And so we establish there what he does and what his team does. Mm -hmm. And so therefore what they're probably going to be doing in the movie. But we also establish something else very interesting as well, which is the name that's printed on the check that's given to him for this particular sneak. Mm. It's not Martin Bryce. No, it is Martin Bishop. And so that's when we realize that he is obviously living now under a different name and assumed identity. You know, if I was running from the FBI for wire fraud or whatever, like I might change more than like I'm still Marty B. If <laughs> I, I change it from Bryce to Bishop. Oh, yeah. OK. So now he's he's Martin Bishop. Mm. We're still going to call him Marty. He's taken the money from the bank, and as he's leaving, his his check now, not the money that he stole, he's taken his check out of the bank. But as he's leaving, we notice that he is being watched. And we find out very soon that he has been watched by two men who show up at the sneakers gang's hideout, clubhouse, place of business. Fancy San Francisco loft that 10 years later, no one would have been able to afford. Absolutely true. And they appear to be customers of this group's services. Are they good customers? Are they poor customers? (laughs) Carl is able to deduce that they probably have money because... Shoes. They have nice shoes. Yeah. So we find out that these two guys are named Dick Gordon and Buddy Wallace. Dick Gordon played by the actor Timothy Busfield. I think he's one of the stars of my hometown. So, Oh, really? For- Sacramento? Sacramento, maybe. Right. And his partner, the dour-faced Buddy Wallace, played by Eddie Jones. Timothy Busfield is, he's the happy one. Okay. And, and Buddy Wallace is the dour one. And I basically only know Eddie Jones as Marla Hooch's dad in A League of Their Own. He's right. really just a small role, but just such a memorable one as well. So I really just think of these two movies for that guy. And they inhabit these roles really well. They yeah. they walk in as customers, but very quickly they take control of the meeting. And it starts to feel very much less like a, hey, can we get your services? 
and more like an interrogation. Yeah, it becomes a coercion for sure. Sitting down at the table, they tell Marty, you know, Marty, we, we did our homework before we came to you. We have files on everybody. And this is where we start to get the backstories of all the members of the crew here that are with Marty. We find out, you know, that Kreese was in the CIA, but is not in the CIA anymore. We find out that Whistler used to be a phone freak, used to make phone calls without paying for them and and those types of scams and kind of what everybody does. And what everybody does are these low key criminal pasts. And they're now working together here. There's files on all of them. Except. There's nothing for Martin Bishop. His file is empty. They literally show him an empty file. Then they make it known to him that they are from the NSA. They're Mm -hmm. from the National Security Agency. Barney says, oh, yeah, you're you're the guys that I hear breathing on the other end of my phone. No, 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 that's the FBI. (laughs) Oh, okay, great. So you're the guy that overthrows governments and sets up friendly dictators. No, 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 no. That's the CIA. The NSA is who protects America's communications. We're code breakers. We're the yeah. good guys, Marty. Good. Yeah. Thanks, Dick. <laughs> you can tell pretty quickly they're not good guys. But at this point, they identify themselves as NSA. And say, we would love for you to come and talk to us, Mr. Bryce. And they write down a contact phone number and address on an old wanted poster for Martin Bryce. So he knows he's caught. He's been found by the government. They know where he is. They're coming to him looking for some sort of favor or else he's going to be arrested and taken away. So how do you find out what favor the government wants? You go to the government's office and ask them, Yeah, which he does. So Marty goes to this big old government building covered in scaffolding and everything where their offices are. There's a homeless man that approaches him. Hey, can you spare a dime? The government's taking away my home. He, of course, being Marty and being the person who helps people, has change to give him, gives him change, goes inside to meet the NSA. In their office, they fill him in on what the deal is. And here's the deal. There is a mathematician by the name of Dr. Gunther Janik, which stupendous name. Yes. Whoever came up with that name for the script, stupendous name sounds exactly like a mathematician. <laughs> we'll see him in upcoming scenes, but he's played by uh, the actor Donal Logue, who I love, but who I always get very, very confused with the actor Peter Sarsgaard, right? <laughs> that I don't know why. You know, Donal Logue's been in tons and tons and tons of things, you know. You, TV and movies. TV and tons. movies. But, but for whatever reason, just something about him strikes me as being a little similar uh, to Peter Sarsgaard. But that being as it may, Dr. Gunther Janik specializes in, surprise, surprise, cryptography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason the NSA has come to Marty and where their concern about Janik comes from is that he has a grant for doing the cryptography research that he's doing, that the grant comes from Russia. Here's the facts to prove it. They show mm-hmm. him. And on that facts, There is a mention of something, a company, a technology. They don't know what it is, but it goes by the name SeaTech Astronomy. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what SeaTech means. S-E-T-E-C, astronomy, SeaTech. Right. And they, they just can't figure out what SeaTech stands for, and that's worrisome to them. And so they want Marty to figure that out, but mostly they want to get the box yeah. that they talk about. And the reason that they need him to do it is because... An operation like this for the NSA would not be strictly legal. And so they need to do it off the books. And who better to get somebody to steal something for you off the books than a criminal who has been on the run who you can leverage and blackmail into doing it or else you'll take him back into custody. You know, Marty didn't care about the money, I don't think. I don't think so. But what he doesn't want, uh, you know, which is the reason he ran in the first place, is he doesn't want to end up in prison. And he specifically doesn't want to end up like Cosmo, uh, his old friend, who they reference in this scene as having died in prison. And obviously he feels really bad about that. He feels really bad all of these years, what, 30 years later, almost, at having ran 
when he went out to get pizza that first time. So this gives him a chance to some degree, I guess, make good. Yeah, he's atoning a little bit. So what does he do? Well, he can't do it by himself. He needs the group. So he goes back to the clubhouse and basically comes clean to the gang about his past, which we understand he has never done fully before. Mm -hmm. They didn't know he was Martin Bryce. Mm -hmm. They only know him as Martin Bishop. Yeah. Crease, most of all, is a bit upset about it and says, you know, we're your partners. You tell us this stuff. And Martin's like, oh, really? Why did you get let go from the CIA? Which, of course, Crease doesn't want to answer. He just does basically almost an about face and kind of gives up on the conversation because he really doesn't want to talk about it. They all have their little secrets is kind of the point. But what ultimately convinces everyone and pretty quickly to take the job on is the money, yeah. right? It's 175000 which in those days was a lot of money. See, that's the thing is I hear that now and I'm like, that's not enough to make me want to do all this, especially when you're splitting it, what, six ways? But and I, this I didn't, is 92. It's okay? 92. I, did, I haven't looked up what that would be in current dollars. Maybe I'll do that on the break. But it's, <laughs> it was, it's enough to convince everybody to go do it, even if you are splitting it six ways. Right. So how do we start? Well... Turns out that Gunther Janik is giving some sort of lecture at a UC campus the next day, and Marty is going to go see it and see Gunther Janik. But he doesn't want to go by himself. He needs somebody who can kind of explain the intricacies to him and says he's thinking of taking Liz. Now, we don't know who Liz is yet, uh-huh. but everybody else seems to. Everyone does, and they all stop in this wonderful comedic moment of everyone looking over their shoulder back towards him. Even Whistler, who can't see him. Obviously something from his past. Mm-hmm. And so Marty goes to meet Liz, um, who is played by the actress Mary McDonnell. Hello, Mary McDonnell, and, and all of your glory. Love. He goes to see her at some sort of what looks like a private school where she is teaching piano prodigies and things like this. And gets the very first words from her before he can even ask her for the favor or tell her what he wants to do. The very first words out of her mouth. We are not getting back together. We are not getting back together. (laughs) So obviously they were in a romantic relationship. It did not go well, but they're still friendly enough that he feels like he needs to be able to ask her to help do him a favor. And it's very obvious, too, that with the two of them together, she's the brains of the operation. Yeah. Because he's going to her and saying, look. I understand what I understand, but I'm not going to understand this. And I need you to come and explain math to me. That's pretty much exactly what she says. What I love, though, is that he also is just so ridiculous about it. And he says, like, I'm not going to ask you out dummy. He calls her dummy, which is wonderful because she's so obviously not a dummy. Mm -hmm. And it's also not something you want to lead with if you're trying to sweet talk somebody into coming to explain math to you. And so he tells her about Janik. He needs her to explain this stuff to them. He tells her the reason I got to go do this and the reason I need you is because the government has found me and they've offered me a deal to get my name back. So obviously he told her about his past. She's the only person it seems like that he has ever told about his background. So of course, reluctantly as it may be, She agrees to go to the lecture with him with the caveat, we're still not getting back together. (laughs) Pick me up at three. So off they go. And uh, we end up at this one of my favorite scenes, I think, in this movie for a lot of reasons. But um, we end up at the lecture being given by Janik. And the shooting on it, I love to death because you're basically doing two things. You're looking at Robert Redford and Mary McDonald sitting together in the seats in this lecture hall, trying to talk to each other without being heard by anybody else around them. And the other person, shh, 
Lots of shushing. Lots of shushing each other <laughs> as they're trying to hear things. And at the same time, you've got Janik up at the front back in the days when we used to use overhead projectors. And he's got a, he's got an overhead slide with the most complex math equation I've ever seen that is projected over the wall and over his white suit. Yes, the suit is amazing. <laughs> And on his face, I mean, he is like embodying this code. And he's just going on and on in indecipherable, at least to me, mathematical language about things. The point of the scene really is to show us that Janik is super duper smart, Mm -hmm. that Janik, in the few words I do understand in his lecture, is talking about unbreakable codes, about cryptography, which relatively newish in the 90s, computer-based anyway, and that you would have to have this incredible math shortcut equation in order to ever be able to solve any sort of encrypted anything. And no one has found that, he says. Yet. Yet. (laughs) And he has that little grin on his face that lets you know right away that he has found it. But he's not going to tell you that he's found it yet. Janik is holding court afterwards at a reception. Liz is certain this guy has figured this thing out. That's what she's taken from the lecture. So they go to see him and Marty wants to talk to him and, and, you know, find what's going on. But before he can, he is waylaid by a lovable character, I think, in this movie. They call him Greg. I think his his full name, as he shows us on his business card, is Gregor Ivanovich, played by the actor George Hearn, who is Russian. Yeah. He's from the Russian embassy, which at that time, you know, this was 92 uh, when the movie came out. So the Soviet Union had just collapsed. Three years prior, right? I think so. Three years. That's not a lot. And so his little business card is Commonwealth of Independent States. It's not Russia. They comment on this. You know, hey, lots of changes going on. Oh, yeah. Now you're known as what? You're a cultural attache. And he he kind of stumbles and goes, oh, it's a new title. You know, everybody's trying to get used to it. He doesn't come out and say this. But to me, it's very clear to me that he's basically KGB. Yeah, they, they don't make anything specific. But I think that's also what's so great about the movie. They don't have to. Lots of things left unsaid. Sure. And so uh, he's he's waylaid by this guy. Uh, The guy obviously knows him. He sees Liz. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy that you two are back together. We're not back together. (laughs) But he says sometime you should come by the embassy. Uh, We have this concert coming up. It'd be lovely to get both of you there together. I'm so glad that you're together. We're not together. (laughs) Janik is soon called away Mm -hmm. and leaves. And Marty excuses himself to follow him. So this is... A scene where when I was sitting and watching the movie again for the bajillionth time the other day, I noticed a cameo that I had never noticed before. When Janik is holding court and standing around the table and talking about his math equation, behind, sort of right in the center of the frame, but standing back in the crowd listening to him is Alex Winter. As in Bill? As in Bill As from in Bill, Bill and Ted's Ted? Excellent Adventure. For real? For real. It's He's not credited. I haven't been able to find anywhere online that confirms that he's in there, but it's absolutely not anybody else except for Bill as Preston Esquire. What would the connection possibly be? Well, he's a well-known filmmaker. Well, right? I Dir- guess that's true. Director he's and director. writer and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so Bill ends up in the... <laughs> <laughs> so Marty follows Janik. 
what happens when he follows Janik. The group is waiting. The team is waiting out in their truck, which kind of is, we have to describe this. It's not a van. It's not a truck. It's like a bread truck or something, which they've stuffed full of electronics. And so they're they're sitting across the street with a telescope trained on Janik's office. Janik enters his office, and, and by this time, Marty's made it back to the van um, so that he can keep an eye on things. You know, they've got a view through the telescope. They've got a microphone under the window. And so Carl, looking through the telescope, starts to describe the office to everybody. There's a pencil cup, and there's an answering machine, and there's uh, some books, and there's a computer, and describes the office. Janik goes to his computer, is about to type in his password. Everybody's very excited because they're going to get a clean look at his password so they can get in and figure out what he knows when he is interrupted. Dr. Elena Rishkoff comes in. Yes, there's a knock at the door, and at the door is the most stereotypical Czech, Russian, big hair, big nailed woman that you could imagine named Dr. Elena Rishkoff, played by Lee Garlington, who is not only a colleague, but is also Janik's lover. And so while everyone is watching and listening, they immediately begin to get frisky. Um, (laughs) The guys take turns watching things through the camera. Most of all, uh, wanting to do so is Carl, who is disallowed by the older guys who want their turns. (laughs) And while she is in there with him, and he's sort of alternately making out with her and claiming that he needs to get back to work, Mm -hmm. she gives this line that will come to play some importance in a while, which is, I'll let you do it. I leave message here on service, but you do not call. (laughs) So, yes, he hasn't been calling her back. And they're still trying to find the password. He's still trying to type in the password. She goes over and is rubbing his back and kissing on him and unfortunately blocking everybody's view of everything. And what they have to do then is they've got to go back now after having taped this. They got to go back and watch through the videotape. This is the days of videotape. And so they're sitting there and they're shuttling through the videotape, you know, listening to her. I leave message on service, but you do not call. Tap, tap, tap on the keyboard. They're looking for his password. They think they have it. They think they don't have it. Eventually, they determine there's no way to tell what his password is, so they have no way to tell where the little black box is. But fortunately, part of the team is Whistler. And Whistler says right there, very clearly, there's the black box right there. It's between the pencil jar and the computer station, whatever. Yeah, but between the pencil jar and the lamp, I think it is. That's right. And you get the lovely line from Dan Aykroyd, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, Whistler, but you're blind. <laughs> and that's when he says, don't look, listen, because that's his superpower. And so they do. They go back and they listen. And what they hear is Rishkov's line again. I leave message for you here on service, but you do not call. Why he, would you have an answering machine if you already have an answering service? He has an answering service. The answering machine that's sitting on his desk, he doesn't need it. It's a dummy. And so therefore, everybody deduces that is Janik's little black box. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what they have to steal. Yeah. All right. So to steal it, they've got to go where he is. He works at a place called the Coolidge Institute. They create a diversion at Janik's office then. Marty is the one who's volunteered to go in and do this, of course. They get to his office door and find out that he has an electronic keypad. Oh, no, don't tell us there's an electronic keypad. That's, those things are impossible to hack. <laughs> What is it? Uh, I think Dan Aykroyd says, I had a buddy in Desert Storm who has had to get through these before. Of course, he was on the other side. (laughs) I love that line. It's so (laughs) good. But they give him, you know, some kind of trick to be able to do it. And all you really see is Robert Redford going, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, as he's listening very carefully. For a long time to instructions. It's a good long 15 seconds or something. And then he says, "Okay, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And what does he do? He just kicks in the door. Just kicks in the door. It's that easy. And it works. So he's inside the office. 
Well, once inside, he makes his way over to the answering machine, opens the top of the answering machine, and inside, there's no guts inside the machine. What's in it is what looks like a big circuit board. Yeah. Hooray. Except. Yeah, he's on his way out. He literally has the answering machine, the faux answering machine in his bag when the door opens. And in walks again, Dr. Elena Rishkoff. Yeah. She's come to see Janik, instead discovers this man in the office where he's not supposed to be. Redford, quick thinking, runs over, grabs Rishkoff around the mouth and says, don't yell. I promise nothing will happen to you. Can I let my hand off your mouth? And then he has to basically come up with a story on the fly and so is asking via his little mic and headset to Crease and Whistler, you know, please tell me what I should be saying. So you have that almost Cyrano moment of them feeding him lines. I'm here because of Mrs. Janik. There's no Mrs. Janik. There's no Mrs. Janik. And everybody back in the van is like... I don't know. You got us. We don't <laughs> we don't know what to tell you now. But he manages to make up a story about how there is a Mrs. Janik that she had paid for their little love jaunt to Mexico City that they had, which the guys know about well, from spying earlier because she mentioned it. That's right. The first time she's in the office that convinces her that Marty is legit. He's telling her I'm here on Mrs. Janik's behalf. You're a pawn. I'm a pawn. And so what we need to do is we both need to help Gunther. This is where you get in this Cyrano moment of them feeding him lines and all these guys being the pranksters that they are. They feed him a line that he shouldn't be saying out loud. (laughs) And he stumbles because he starts saying it. And that line is as he's listing the things that she needs to do for him and give him head whenever he wants. And so he quick thinkingly changed it and stumbles and says, give him help. 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 Be a beacon. Yes, he adds his own line at the end, which is, be a beacon to him. <laughs> which, once it works and she leaves and everything is is okay, you get the last little check-in between Marty and the van, and neither one of them can believe what the other one said. Give him head? Be a beacon? <laughs> so he's found it. He's found the thing he was looking for. He can clean up his name. Everybody's going to get paid. So what do you do? You celebrate. You have a party. You have a party. And back at the office, there's a giant party going on. Everybody is dancing. You got Chain of Fools playing and River Phoenix dancing in kind of odd spastic ways. It's glorious. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie as well, for a lot of reasons. But just because this one, it's very stylish and it's very joyous. Yeah. And it turns from joyous to other things relatively quickly. Really fast, really quickly. Uh, While they're there uh, having the party, you know, things are going on. Mother is talking to Kreese's wife. Kreese, who seems to be the only one besides, I guess, Marty, (laughs) with like a healthy life outside of computers and technology. He actually has a family. He has a family. His daughter. and daughter are there. Carl gets more of Marty's story Mm -hmm. out of him because they found out, oh, yeah, you're on the run. Yeah. But... Marty explains a bit more about the story, uses that line, you know, I went for pizza and then I went to Canada and also reveals to them that Cosmo had died in prison. This is just sticking with him no matter what. It's always in the back of his mind. And he doesn't know if Cosmo ever forgave him. And right. And you can tell that that sticks with him. There's another planting and payoff moment, but it's also a fun character development moment where you you get an insight into what everybody is going to do with their share of the money, which really kind of speaks to who they are as people. Mm -hmm. And so they go around the room. I can't remember who they start with, but hey, Crease, what are you going to do with the money? He wants to go to Tahiti and he wants to take his wife to Europe. It goes the opposite direction. It is? We, we 
we've never gone to Europe, Europe and so together. And so we want to go to this country. We want to go to this country and this country. And the wife adds, and, and Tahiti. Tahiti. <laughs> That's right. It was her idea. She kind of goes, ooh, Tahiti. <laughs> they ask mother what he wants. And mother wants a Winnebago. With burgundy interior, waterbed, big kitchen. Carl wants what Carl wants always, which is a lady. Deep relationship with a beautiful woman. And Whistler wants the nicest thing, I think, out of all of them, which yeah. even with the money is peace, peace on, on earth, earth, goodwill toward men. And women. And it's a big celebration because we know the money's coming because we got the box. The party starts winding down a little bit. So you're at that point where everybody's done dancing. Everybody's done kind of celebrating. Things are getting a little bit quieter. So you have a couple of different groups of people who are starting to splinter off and do their own thing. And Marty and Kreese and and Liz and and Kreese's wife and everybody, they're sitting over at the table and playing a game of Scrabble, I guess, as you do when you're at a celebrational party. Sure. And the nerdier bits of the group, uh, starting with Whistler, are just sitting over checking out the black box, mm-hmm. toying around with it. Hey, what does this say on this input? What does this say? Hey, can you bring me a piece of wire? And Kreese is a little wary about them mucking around with it, but they reassure him that nah, we're just, you know, we just want to see it. It's not a big deal. But then the Scrabble, Robert Redford's character, Marty, looks down and he all of a sudden realizes that C-Tech, C-Tech Astronomy, S-E-T-E-C, is an anagram. C-Tech Astronomy doesn't mean anything. It doesn't anything. mean anything. It gives him the opportunity now that he's had the brainwave to kind of clear off the Scrabble board, grab the pieces that he needs, and he and Liz start to decipher, start to move the letters around and figure out what the anagram could be, which turns into one of the more exciting but also funniest moments of the movie, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And so they're swapping letters around and asking everybody if they mean anything. So Monterey's Coast. Hey, everybody, does Monterey's Coast mean anything to you? No. No, No, nothing. Uh, My Socrates note. Does that mean anything to anybody? No, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. And then the third one they managed (laughs) to come up with Cooties, rat, semen. And they just stop and look at each other and then shake their heads. It's definitely not that one. It's definitely not that one. It doesn't mean anything. And this unscrambling is intercut then with Whistler over at his computer, which this was the first time I had ever seen a Braille terminal. Yeah, me neither. That was amazing. And just to describe it, it's not quite a keyboard, a, a traditional keyboard. It's more like a little box with Braille touch points that pop up and down to read out what's on the screen. And so he's running his fingers over this thing. He's able to see what's going on on screen. And as he is doing that, and Carl is helping him by connecting this lead to this lead and this lead to this lead, all of a sudden he hits upon the right one and boom, what had been little bits of code here, little bits of code there, you know, inconsequential, turns into the biggest line of code in the whole world that zooms past and reflects on his glasses in a classic shot from the film. It's the best scene. I think if you just need one freeze frame of the entire movie, that's what you choose. At the exact same time, Marty and Liz have figured out that C-Tech astronomy can decipher to the Mm -hmm. phrase, too many secrets. And that plays right into and makes sense with cryptography that makes sense with codes that makes sense with math and so at that point everybody gets together and comes over to whistler's computer to have a look at what this thing can do yeah and whistler asks carl hey carl you got any encrypted website something that's just impossible to access and he says yeah why try the federal reserve yeah click 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 and all of a sudden the federal reserve which no one can get into without the right codes deciphers and we start this pattern of you know hey anybody want to 
you know, crash the stock market. What's another one? National the power grid. National power grid. Do you want to black out all half of New England? Uh-huh. Things like that. It starts escalating as they start trying these different sites and being able to break in to each and every one of them when and the, they shouldn't have the ability to do so. And the one that scares everybody the most, especially Crease, is uh, they can get into air traffic control. Hey, anybody want to crash a couple of passenger jets? You know, they're they're joking, but the seriousness of it hits. It's not funny anymore. And Crease demands that they shut it down, and they shut it down immediately. So what does that mean? They're all basically looking at each other and in shock. And somebody, I think it, is it might be Liz, and she says, so it's a code breaker? And Marty says, no, it's the code breaker. No more secrets anywhere. And Crease is the one who brings the seriousness to it and says there isn't a government in the world that wouldn't kill us all for this. So they are essentially on lockdown within their own warehouse. And that includes almost everybody. So Kreese is able to let his wife and daughter go home. But because they don't know who else might know, they make Liz spend the night and stay there with them. Liz is the only one who knew Marty's secret. Right. And that had somehow gotten to the NSA. The NSA had gotten to them. They have stolen this box, which turns out to be this ultimate code-breaking thing, which they now realize is incredibly dangerous that they should not have in their possession, and that puts them all at risk. And so they are locking down until the handoff with the NSA the next day. Yeah. Good time to take a break. We'll be back with more. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast. And right now, you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. You are listening to Subgenre Season 2. We are talking about the film Sneakers. I'm here with my wife, podcast host, author, Jennifer Dassel. You enjoying the talk? I love this movie. I love talking about it. So, yes. Me too. <laughs> All right. We could do some more plot, but I think maybe let's take a quick sidetrack and geek out. <laughs> awesome. The geek out for today is a little different than the geek out that we would normally do, because this one, I think, is specifically tailored to my guest host. <laughs> <laughs> because I, we want to talk about Robert Redford, star of Sneakers, Robert Redford. But I, I want to talk about it through the lens of your eternal undying love for <laughs> the man and his films. You like a little Robert Redford. I really, really, really do. He's my first love. He's your first love. He's my first love. And I love you more than anything. And also Robert Redford. And I've known this for a long time. Yeah, I, it's I, okay. sh- I share you with Robert Redford and I'm fine with that. <laughs> But can you explain to me and to everybody else where that love from Robert Redford comes from and what it's about? I can tell you specifically 
when and how I fell in love with Robert Redford. I was 13. And so, you know, that's a very impressionable age. I was never the kid that had the crushes on like the new kids on the block kids, uh, you know, Tom Cruise, all of that, all the stuff that a lot of my other friends did. So I'm an 80s baby in case you can't tell from those call outs. I don't know. I didn't really have a lot of idols who I was really into. But one day when I was 13, I got sick. I wanted to watch a movie and I asked my mom to run down to Blockbuster Video for me and to get me a movie. And for some reason, I remembered that my mom always loved to play the soundtrack to the movie Out of Africa, Mm. 1985. I heard it growing up. I thought, well, that sounds like a fun thing. Let's just give that a shot because what else are you going to watch when you're sick at home and you're 13 but Out of Africa? But it worked out and I was engrossed in the story. And that was really my first time seeing Robert Redford on the screen. And oh, just so romantic, so beautiful, so handsome. And that love for Robert Redford that started with Out of Africa grew from there. At least I know to All the President's Men and some other films. No, I think I lucked out in that at the same time, they just happened to have some Robert Redford marathons going on on AMC or TCM or one of those cable stations from back in the day. And so I ended up being able to catch all of these Robert Redford movies all at the same time. So especially even some deep cuts like Inside Daisy Clover and This Property is Condemned, got to see The Great Gatsby, The Way We Were. I mean, all of these movies from his early part of his career, like Barefoot in the Park, going into the 80s. And then in 90s, this is an interesting phase in Robert Redford's career because movies like Sneakers are super fun, but they're also very different from a lot of what he was doing before. And you can tell that he's starting to move a little bit further away from acting and more into his directing career, which is really where in the last 20 or 30 years he started really focusing his attentions. So I think he was picking movies like Sneakers and also very infamously like Indecent Proposal, which came out the Mm. following year. I think he was looking for fun movies. That would be an interesting payout for him so that he could use his time and those proceeds to fund his directing projects, which were also very indie. We'll take it from two different sides, from an acting side and then from a beautiful man side. (laughs) When was peak Robert Redford in each of those categories? Oh, 1973, 74. Around the time of... Uh, Three is the Condor. Well, well, for which? For both? Both. Uh, oh, okay. Both. So, so best acting and best looking yeah. right around Three Days of the Condor. I love that, like, not quite mutton chops phase, but like the serious sideburns, almost aviatory, nerdy glasses going on. So I think it's kind of Three Days of the Condor, all the president's men. Got it. 70s Redford. It's right about the time Great Gatsby was out. It's right about the time The Sting was out. Yeah. A lot of people think that peak Robert Redford is the way we were Robert Redford, and he is real beautiful in that movie. But I like a little bit of the grittier Redford. Political Redford beats Sundance Redford. No. Why are you making me choose? They're all so good. (laughs) I don't guess you have to choose. Butch Cassidy the Sundance Kid is one of my top 10 movies, I think, ever. So then sum it up for anybody uh, looking to become like you and go deep down the rabbit hole. Where should they start movie wise Mm. and why in 30 seconds or less should they become an undying Robert Redford fan? Start with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It was really what put him on the path to superstardom. He became such a huge star in the 70s in particular. So start with that because that's where he really made his name. He's an incredible actor with amazing, wonderful range who is very understated. I think he's one of those old school actors. 
the kind that we don't have anymore, who's not really self-effacing and very humorous. He's a very serious person who seriously tailored his career and still continues to tailor his career around his strong ethical and moralistic beliefs. So this is somebody who started the Sundance Institute, the Sundance Film Festival, because he wanted there to be more access for people to make their different kind of movies outside of the Hollywood system. He's someone who is a very strong, lifelong environmentalist and a political activist. And I just like that. And he's blonde and beautiful and still has all his hair. Yes. We'll call that the end to today's Let's Geek Out. But let's get back to our feature presentation. We had left Robert Redford and the gang at their hangout, hideout, and they were in hiding because they had just discovered that they had this thing that every government on the world would kill them for. It is the next day. It is time to hand this thing off to the NSA. And so Marty and Kreese hop in one of your favorite cars, I know. Oh, a beautiful Carmen Ghia convertible. They drive it down to what appears to be a cafe under, I think, the Bay Bridge. Yeah, I think it's like the Presidio area, I believe. And uh, step up to the two guys having coffee. He brings the box with him. Hey, guys, I got what you wanted. Where is my money? Mm-hmm. They take a look at it, pop it open, look to make sure everything is good inside. All right, give the man his check. Right about that time, while Marty is up there doing that, Kreese is standing back at the car and happens to glance into the back seat. And they've got, you know, the newspaper. And he sees that right there beneath the fold is a line that says that Gunter Janik has been killed. Killed and arson is suspected oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, something terrible has happened to this guy who found the box in the first place. Kreese always the person on the lookout for who's doing what to who, his instincts kick in and says, this is not right. These guys are not NSA. And so he picks up the car phone. There's car phone. With a cord. With a cord. actual car phone. (laughs) At least it wasn't the bag. It was was installed in the car. Picks up the car phone, holds it up in the air, waves it at uh, Martin and says, hey, uh, Martin, you got a phone call. Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of something here. I'm turning over secrets to the NSA and says, no, 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 no. It's your mother. Yeah. Thanks for being so obvious, though, about that, Crease. Like you could have said anything else. I mean, and also you'd think that they would have some kind of secret code built in that's not going to alert the bad guys that you're being real weird. It's your mother. Which, you know, Marty plays off as she's old. (laughs) That is a really great line, though. So he heads back to the car. What's going on? What are we doing? And Kreese tells him immediately, get Get in in the the car. car. Janik's dead. Yeah. So they hop in the car. They speed away. They didn't get the money. The two guys who are, we'll put quotes around it now, NSA, Mm -hmm. stand up ready to draw guns and shoot them. And Marty gets away at the last second. So what do you do to find out who these guys are? Well, you go to a concert. (laughs) Marty, if we remember has been invited to the Russian embassy. Mm -hmm. By Gregor. uh, By Gregor. Has been invited to go see the Kiev String Quartet or whatever it is. And so he sneaks his way into, I guess it doesn't sneak in, he comes in because he's been invited, but sneaks up behind Gregor, pulls a gun on him surreptitiously and says, come with me. Mm-hmm. And so they go downstairs into this wonderful set piece of the underground pool, I guess, at the Russian so embassy. interesting. It's such a beautiful shot. You could see the steam from the heated pool wafting around them. It's awesome. And he questions Gregor and he says, where's the box? What's going on here? And Gregor tells him, look, I know you don't trust me. I know I'm KGB or whatever. But we didn't take it. This isn't us. And says, you know, American codes are very different from Russian codes. So, of course, I want it, but I don't have it. And he says, uh, I can tell you something, but I can't tell you here. So let's go for a ride. 
Wait, can we talk about one of my favorite shots in the whole movie, though? So it's when Gregor is starting to go back up the stairs from that basement pool area, and he steps down a step and leans in and tells Marty, you have to trust me. But when he does that, he moves from being in spotlight into shadow. And so he Mm. says, you can trust me when you see absolutely nothing of his face. It is so wonderful. And this becomes a recurring theme, too, which will get repeated by other characters in the movie of you have to trust me or you're not going to know who to trust, right? Trust is is a huge factor in this movie. So they go for a ride. What do they do while they're taking a ride in the chauffeured Mercedes uh, around town? They have physical books of photos of people that the Russians thought maybe they could turn. Yeah. So they're going through, do you recognize this guy? Is this one of the two guys that claimed to be NSA? No. Is this guy? No, no. Until finally he turns the right page and we land on a picture of Buddy and Redford goes, that guy. And it's from this odd little moment in this movie that we get a family saying <laughs> here in the Dassel household. It's been one of those things that has stuck all of these years is Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace. Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace. A loathsome man named Buddy DeVries. He's, he's a Buddy loathsome Weber. man named Buddy DeVries, a.k.a. Buddy Weber, a.k.a. Buddy, Buddy Wallace. Wallace. <laughs> and something about that has stuck all these years. But Buddy is not who he claims he is. The no. Russians know he's not. He's got a lot of aliases. And that's not the worst part. Gregor looks at something and goes, oh, and realizes that there's something more, something worse about Buddy, potentially who he's actually really working for. And it's so bad that he tells Marty, you disappeared once, you need to disappear again. And you get a sense, too, that Greg knows Marty and Greg knows Liz. So they were all kind of ran in the same circles prior to Marty having put together or joined up with the crew that he's currently with. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was some sort of in-between life that we are not really privy to Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. he would have been in close quarters with a lady who knows math, who teaches music and a ex-KGB, current KGB person. It's interesting. It is very interesting. So, Marty, you need to disappear again. There is something bad here. And Marty's going, what is it? What's going on? Who does he work for? But they don't have the opportunity to talk about it. Because right that moment, police lights light them up from behind. They're being pulled over. And Gregor says, oh, you're FBI. They're just a pain in the butt. Yeah. They're always doing this. He then turns to Marty and says, you know, this is the moment you need to trust me. I can offer you protection because they're in an embassy vehicle so he can have that diplomatic immunity situation going on. It sounds like Gregor is assuming that the FBI is there to arrest Marty. Arrest Marty. Mm -hmm. So he offers him asylum and Marty declines. He's uh, all right, fine. He's going to give himself up, starts to step out of the car. Gregor offers him the one last line. You You won't won't know know who who to trust. trust. So. Out of the car goes Marty. He's giving himself up. The FBI guys, you know, show him their badges, take him into custody, put him up against the wall, put mm-hmm. the handcuffs on him, frisk him. In the course of frisking him, the lead agent finds a gun. The they, same one that Marty tried to point to Gregor when they were right. at the uh, Kiev Quartet. Ask him, is this gun loaded? Yes, it's loaded. So Marty knows he's in a bunch of trouble. Yeah. But the FBI agent doesn't take the gun into custody. He turns around and shoots Gregor. And the chauffeur. Gregor seems to just understand exactly what's happening and accepts being shot. Driver runs away. But these are obviously not FBI. No. The same way that NSA was not NSA. Yeah. And we know that because just that moment, out of the shadows, comes Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace. (laughs) And basically knocks Redford out. Yeah, pistol whips him, knocks him out, screen goes to black. So we've had another moment of betrayal, another moment of things not being what they seem, which leads to Marty awaking with a headache. Mm Mm-hmm. 
in the trunk of a moving car. And then you have this wonderful scene. It's probably a good, what, 30 seconds or so where you just are in Marty's viewpoint in the dim red light of the trunk as he's just lying there listening, trying to figure out what's going on, where he is. And he hears all kinds of sounds. And then the car stops. Yeah. Trunk opens. It's Buddy again. Buddy's not happy that uh, Marty's awake. What are you doing awake? (laughs) Smacks him in the head again with the revolver and knocks him out. The second time that Marty wakes up is in a very different location. It's Mm -hmm. not a car trunk. It's an office. It has all kinds of really weird art. There's a shark tank, a literal shark tank. Yeah. It's really strange. A room that appears to have large computer equipment in it, like a glassed-in room. It's obviously the office of somebody very well off. And techie. And techie. And standing in the shadows is a figure who offers the words, pain, try aspirin, mm-hmm. extends his hands, and does a very familiar magic trick, which Marty immediately recognizes. It's Cosmo, his old friend. Of course, older this time, and the older Cosmo played by Ben Kingsley. Fantastic. Steps out of the shadows and it's like, holy cow, it's Ben Kingsley. And our old friend Cosmo, who used to be this kind of happy-go-lucky grad student-y guy, is now a gray-haired... Ponytailed. Ponytailed, dark-suited gentleman. And so this is where we get a lot of exposition about what Cosmo's been doing this whole time. Thought you were dead. No, I wasn't dead. I went to prison, but while I was in prison, I met, we should call them good family men. Yes, yes. Who asked him to help make some free phone calls. Helping them make some free phone calls turned into doing the accounting and (laughs) setting up. Doing the books. (laughs) Doing the books for the mob, essentially. He's he's become a mob accountant, is what he says. Uh, And I've set up all their systems. They can do all of these different things. And that's what I've done with my life to this point. Sorry we had to smack you on the head. I'd like the box because if anybody can decipher my mob accounts, what would happen? And we get what I've read some critics describing as the four syllable word that comes out of uh, out of his mouth. Disaster. Ben Kingsley's accent in this movie is very strange because it's not his wonderful British accent. Mm. I don't know what it is. It's not Russian. It's not Italian. It's a weird mix. It feels like, here's what that feels like. Not the other times he has weird accents, but this particular word, the disaster, Mm -hmm. sounds to me like he's putting on an Italian mob New York accent, right? It's sort of the nod to, I'm working for these guys. Because up to this point, he's been talking like Ben Kingsley a little bit. There's still weird There's a weirdness, but but it's been relatively straightforward. And then we throw in disaster. Disaster. But it doesn't ring true to Marty. Marty doesn't buy it. Mm-mm. And Cosmo very quickly lets the game go. And say, oh, yeah, okay. So that's not really because of the mob. It's really great to see you, Marty. <laughs> I'm glad to see you. Here's really what I've been doing. And takes him over to that computer room. The glassed in. The glassed in computer. And there's what just looks like a big giant computer. I need to look this up for certain. I should have looked it up before this, but. I can remember back in the day, a good friend of mine who was very, we'll kindly call it into computers um, <laughs> when I was younger and we'll call it curious about others' computers, uh-huh, uh-huh. told me back in the day that that was his favorite part of the movie because that thing that they're sitting on and using as furniture is a Cray supercomputer, which at the time was the most powerful supercomputer in existence in the world. And so that's what he's using his furniture in this in this room to sit and talk to Marty. <laughs> Just thought it was a bench. And so he tells him, here's what I've actually been doing. 
you remember when we were sitting in that lab and we were transferring all that money and we thought that we could change the world? I think I figured it out. And we have, you know, kind of a Captain Exposition scene here where Cosmo sort of lays out his master plan. But the master plan as he lays it out is money's the problem in the world. Capitalism is the problem in the world. I work in not reality, but the perception of reality, right? So if I can change the perception of reality, then I can change reality in the way I want to. And they play this game, which we saw a little bit of in the first scene. I'm just going to call it the posit game. Mm -hmm. But this is where they play that for another time. Posit, a bank is assumed to be financially shaky. Mm -hmm. The result is they actually become financially shaky. And the consequence is that the bank fails. Yeah. And Cosmo kind of walks Marty up through this escalating series of things that not only could he affect, but that he has affected. Things like banks, commodities markets, small countries. You may have even heard of a few, I think is the line. And says, I think I may even be able to crash the whole damn system. What does that mean? It means making everybody the same, destroying all records of ownership, utopia. But a utopia in a way that benefits Cosmo. Right, of course. And so getting in the way of this dream of utopia with Cosmo at the head of it, and also at the end of a long-standing grudge mm-hmm. is Marty. Yeah. And this whole, hey, Marty, it's been nice to see you. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Hey, let me tell you about my world plans, takes a dark turn. As... He's been so polite and like mm-hmm. kind up to this point. But when Marty shows hesitation, all of a sudden it twists. And Cosmo takes the box, goes over to his computer, logs into a system he shouldn't be able to get into, which is the FBI records. And says, tomorrow, the gun that killed Gregor, there's going to be prints lifted off of it. Those prints are going to come back as belonging to a Martin Bryce, which nobody knows where Martin Bryce is. But what if there was an alias also listed? And he types in Martin Bishop into the alias field, comes back to the line about pain, Mm -hmm. try prison. Hits enter. Hits enter, updates the database. And that means that Marty is now known by the FBI who he is, where he is, and that they can come get him. Yeah. And he gets knocked out again. To add insult to injury, here comes Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace again, and cracks him on the head or chokes him or something at that point, knocks him out, drives him somewhere, dumps him on a road. At sunrise. the top of a hill in San Francisco. You can see Alcatraz in the distance. It's beautiful. It's actually a very pretty shot for being thrown from a car scene. (laughs) But that ultimately lands him on the only place he can go at this point, which is on Liz's doorstep. Yeah. And she takes care of him. She dabs the iodine on uh, everything. And it's a tender moment between these two people who said, oh, we're not going to get back together, where he apologizes. And at first, she maybe thinks he's apologizing for having shown up on her doorstep. He makes it very clear he's apologizing for everything. Yeah. Anything that he's ever done that has been a problem between the two of them. Why their relationship whatever reason, fell apart. He tells her, I can't do this alone, and she assures him, I'm here. But then he also has to gather the rest of the team. But they're not safe anymore, so they actually have to take over poor Liz's immaculate, beautifully constructed apartment. Yeah, takeover is kind. It's, <laughs> they come in with every piece of gear they own and just ransack the place, hanging cables from chandeliers and big boxes of this and big terminals of this all over her apartment, trashing the whole thing. And she's just sort of standing against the door 
just letting it go because she can't do anything about it. And the reason they're doing this is because they need to make a phone call. Mm -hmm. They're calling Fort Meade. We know that. Yes. And they're really just trying to figure out what the hell SeaTac Astronomy is Mm -hmm. to get a better handle on what they can do about their predicament. But they got to make a phone call. But they know if they make a phone call, it's going to be traced immediately. So what do they do? They get Whistler to essentially route their phone call through seven or eight different locations around the globe, off a satellite, et cetera, to make it near impossible to trace where they're calling from. Mm -hmm. And that requires all this gear. And in addition, they hook up a voice stress meter to the call so they can tell whoever they're talking to whether that person is lying or not. Okay, we start the call. And almost immediately upon the secretary at Fort Meade, I guess, the receptionist picking it up and saying, who do you need? And they ask for SeaTac Astronomy. The trace is on. On Whistler's screen, you get to see the beep, 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 as the guys in the government are figuring out, you know, what are the different stations around the world that this call is being bounced on. And this creates this ticking clock of how long they have to talk. With Whistler continually saying, we've got 15 seconds left. They're tracing us. Oh, my gosh, these guys are good. And at the same time... Mother is watching that stress meter, basically the lie detector and saying, true, you know, anything that this person says, we haven't even talked about this person yet, but whoever's on the line, whether or not he is telling the truth. And that person that answers the phone once they ask for SeaTac Astronomy is this deep baritone. We'll get into who that baritone belongs to, but he identifies himself as a Mr. Abbott. Mm -hmm. Marty asks if Mr. Abbott can guarantee his safety if he comes in. Abbott is evasive and says, do you have the box? So whoever they've called obviously knows that this thing exists, knows who Marty is, knows why he's calling. And, uh... All the while, the trace is still going on. So what Abbott is doing is buying for time while his guys are tracing this phone, trying to figure out where everybody is. We finally back him into a corner a bit. Can you guarantee my safety? Abbott thinks about it. There's a few seconds left in the call. Says, yes, I can guarantee your safety. But the stress meter is wildly swinging. So they can tell immediately that he's lying. And so they force Marty, they say, in the call. And hangs up. With about, you know, Two and a half seconds seconds left or something. (laughs) He hangs up with, we only have 30 seconds to get this next piece of information to move the story forward. It's a nice device of a way to do that. This little sort of like mini ticking clock within a bigger ticking clock. Yeah. Okay. So they've called. They figured out that the NSA or whoever else they called is not being square with them. And so they're going to have to go find this thing themselves. They have to go find the box. They got to go find the box. But... How do you find the box at a place where you were driven in a car? You know, Marty's the only body that's ever been to where this thing is. He was in a dark car trunk the whole time and he was knocked out for half the time. And so he has no idea where it is. It could be next door. It could be down the block. It could be on the other side of the country. And it is, again, Whistler that comes to the rescue here and says, what did it sound like? This is Whistler's shining moment, I think. I mean, there's a few of his shining moments. He really is a key character in this film. But I think this is a really fun one. For better and for worse, this movie relies heavily mm-hmm. on Whistler. Mm-hmm. It, it always seems like, to some degree, Whistler is the deus ex machina in a lot yeah. of these scenes. He's the way that everything gets solved, which I think in a lesser movie would just be annoying. Yeah. But in this movie, and because of how endearing the character is, how David Stratham plays the character, maybe because of the vibe of that character and the vibe of all these sort of lovable loser characters, Mm -hmm. it just works. I think the pacing also plays into it, too, because each time we are led through Whistler working it out and figuring it out so that we are part of that journey. And I think that's really fun because it feels like you're part of solving this 
problem or the code. To some degree, it is almost like we as an audience figuratively are blind to a lot of things. <laughs> and so we are having to work along with the character who has a disadvantage, mm -hmm. sort of like we as the audience have a disadvantage in knowledge, and work with this character to figure out things along the way. I don't know. Th I there's, like it. there's something nice about it, although it does happen a lot. And there are all these really key moments. But this one is really fun, I think. So Whistler, in addition to the 90 other things that he has brought with him, has brought a synthesizer. And he says, what did it sound like in the car trunk? Did you hear anything? Were there any repetitive noises? Uh, maybe like seams in the concrete. Yeah. yeah, I remember that, says Marty. And so Whistler starts to recreate the sound on the synthesizer. No, a little, little further apart, a little deeper toned. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Finally gets the right tone on it and says, okay, that sounds like a bridge. We mm -hmm. went across a bridge. Well, there's only four bridges in the Bay Area. So the group starts to get interested in this. It's a puzzle to be solved, right? And then they all start contributing elements like, was the uh, Golden Gate fogged in last night? So you would hear a foghorn. We didn't hear a foghorn, so it wasn't. Being a California person, you can help me out here. Yeah. So there's four bridges in the Bay Area. You the know, one I thought there were five, though. There may be five. So, so <laughs> the, the ones that seem to matter in this, the one that everybody knows is the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. right? There is the Bay Bridge. We've yeah. already mentioned that here. Yep. There is the San Mateo Bridge mm -hmm. and the Dunbarton, Dunbarton. Bridge. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they say, well, it can't be the Golden Gate Bridge. Golden Gate was fogged in last night. That yeah. leaves us three to pick from. Did you go through a tunnel? No, I didn't go through a tunnel. So okay. it's not the Bay. It's not the Bay Bridge because there's a tunnel on the Bay Bridge. So that leaves San Mateo and Dunbarton. And so in that scene, they don't narrow it down the one more so that we know which bridge they're going over in the scene next where we see them actually driving on a bridge. Yeah. Do you know which bridge that is? I thought it was the San Mateo, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, so they don't identify it, which is really odd. They figure out which bridge it is. We're hearing that cha-chunk, cha-chunk, cha-chunk as they're driving the bread truck over it. Whistler has his synthesizer there in the back of the truck, right? Says... Okay, what did you hear next? I went over some big bumps. Okay, well, there's some railroad tracks after the bridge. That makes sense. And then what? And Martin has to stop for a minute and think about it, and he seems almost embarrassed to say, and then tells them, and then I heard a cocktail party. Okay, now we got to look for a cocktail party. <laughs> Who's having a cocktail Who's party? Who's having a cocktail party? And of course, who understands what that means? Whistler. Yeah, what's the next road? Okay, I want you to get off at that road, and I want you to go down by the reservoir. Mm -hmm. There's a cocktail party at the reservoir. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, there is. <laughs> and turns out the cocktail party is the giant flocks of geese, right, that hang out at the reservoir who are honking and talking. And really, if you just if you kind of close your eyes and listen, it sounds like a cocktail party. It's great. This is where Whistler tells Bishop, I need to make you an honorary blind person. Good, <laughs> good job. So they've made their way across the bridge, across the railroad tracks, down to the cocktail party. But unfortunately, they're now on a dead end dead road. End. There is nowhere else to go, and there's nothing here. Carl's looking on his plot map. His, yeah, on his plot map, and says, yeah, "There's nothing here, guys. All there is at the end of this thing is private property." <gasps> Private property. They know, obviously, right away, private property. Someone has some control over there. So sneak onto the private property, have a look. What's at the end of private property but a big corporate building hidden up behind the trees? And this is, I love this movie. Yeah. I love everything about this movie. This, to me, is the one weakness, I think, in the movie, which is the company itself that is Cosmo's front. 
It's a toy company. It's Playtronics. They're making voice-activated stuff. They're making robots, mm-hmm. I'm sure. They're making whatever. Yeah. But something about that takes me out of the movie a little bit. It just feels like a thing you put in a movie versus mm. a thing that is real. Okay, okay. I don't know how to describe that, but nobody has a toy company as a technology. Maybe they do, but it just I doesn't mean, feel like... There feels like there's a hundred other things they could have done. You know, we, we make... I don't know, lawn sprinklers or whatever. (laughs) It's the toys. Okay, fine. Whatever. That's my big gripe. And if that's my only gripe on this thing, it's pretty good. But uh, there it is. There's the the Playtronics toy company. But being a toy company, it shouldn't have all of the razor wire and laser fencing and security that it seems to have. It's real secure. And that's weird. And so Marty immediately says, you know, like, toy company, my ass. That's not a toy company. That is Cosmo. Everything about this building says go away. So what do we do? Well... Being the sneakers, we grab our gear, we set up equipment, and we start to scan this building from the outside. Whistler again, Mm -hmm. listening through the big directional microphone to kind of figure out what's in each of these different rooms based on the hums and tones and things that are there. And happens to land on a room that has a voice print sensor that asks for, my voice is my passport, verify me. What does that mean? That's one of those voice print sensors. Mm -hmm. Well, what's in the office next door? The office next door is just bursting with ultrasonic, you know, somebody's very serious about keeping people out of this room and they're able to figure out that that is probably Cosmo's office and so therefore that's probably where the box is. So now they need to figure out a way to get into Cosmo's office by not getting directly there first. You have to get in there kind of by a roundabout way. Yeah, if we went through the front door, there's probably, you know, guys with guns. Yeah. So who could we possibly get into who's nearby? And that's when they start trying to figure out based on, you know, the last guy who comes out into the parking lot, whose lights turn off, you know, who's right next door to Cosmo's office. Yep. And they finally figured out. Which turns out to be what they call the world's most boring human, Werner Brandis. I love this so much. But also a great name right up there with Gunther Janik. But Werner Brandis played by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen Tobolowsky, one of the funniest people on the planet, best known to me and probably to you. Yep. As Ned Ryerson, Bing! Ned Ryerson! From Groundhog Day. That's Stephen Tobolowsky. That's Werner Brandis. This is who has the office, apparently, next door to Cosmo's office. This is the person that they are going to have to use his office. And so to get into his office, they have to figure out how to get around his, what we call that, the voice print sensor, Mm -hmm. right? They've got to get his voice and they've got to get it on tape and it's got to be nice and close in order for them to even beat this thing by using tape. So they've got to figure out a way to learn a lot about this guy to be able to get close to him. The way they choose and seems to be standard operating procedure is they search his trash. Yes. I didn't notice this until very recently. That's this wonderful callback to the idea of sneakers in general, which is that mother, while going through the trash, holds up part of a Cap'n Crunch box. Ah. Thinking about Cap'n Crunch being one of the very first, you know, quote unquote sneakers in the 70s was this guy was one of those phone freaks who went by the name Cap'n Crunch. John Draper, who was known as Captain Crunch, kind of back in the, was it early 70s. 70s. Yeah, whatever that whistle was that came inside the box of Captain Crunch could blow into payphones. Something about that tone would trigger the mechanism that made it think that you had put money in, and so therefore he could make free Free phone calls calls all over the place. Totally. Yeah, so that's where the character of Whistler, I think, is actually kind of based on that guy. Yeah. They're searching through the guy's trash, by the way, on Liz's nice floor. (sighs) Um, But what they notice about the trash is that it's not very trashy. It's beautifully folded and Mm -hmm. separated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Everything is, is real pristine. This is a person who is very meticulous, very organized, and so they're going to need to figure out the best way to get to this guy, and they find in this meticulous trash a letter that proclaims him as a computer dater. Computer dater! Oh no, how nerdy! How nerdy! <laughs> hey kids, uh, let's, <laughs> let's take a trip backwards again. Before Tinder, before <laughs> even Craigslist, before... All those things that are, are kind of acceptable ways to meet people now. Back in the day, if you were a computer dater, you had to turn in a profile and they, somebody ran it through with punch cards through a computer and it matched you up with somebody else who had done the same thing. And it was kind of considered not a cool way to meet no, people. No, it was considered super losery. I don't think losery is a word, but you get it. Whereas now, I mean, that's like how many people do you know who have met online? All like, of them. Almost everybody I know. So I think this is one of those moments that also dates it, but in a wonderful way. It's old and fun the same way that the technology that they use in here is old and fun. Yeah. It's yeah. retro in a great way. You know, they come up with the idea once they find out that he's a computer dater, they go, oh yeah, well, we obviously need to set him up with a lady that we know. And Mother, what about your ex-wife? No, she left me because she didn't want to be involved. Carl, what about your friend? Oh yeah, she's buff. And it's great. And But then Liz says, no, look at this guy's trash. He does not want buff. He wants somebody very, very, very put together and meticulous. Anal she says. And that's when you get that wonderful everyone stopping and looking over their shoulder at her. And she says, what? Yeah. Last time everybody turned around to look at Marty when he had the idea of going back to Liz. This time everybody's turned around and looking at Liz because they realize she's perfect. She is exactly who they want to bring in. And so she plays this key role in really getting to meet Warner Brandis and pretending to be his date that yeah. they got hooked up with. It's great. Off she goes to what is the world's worst blind date, um, <sighs> posing as a woman named Doris. She meets Werner at a Chinese restaurant where there's a very bad karaoke rendition of Bad Bad Leroy Brown. He's very awkward. He's stuffing his face while she's trying to talk to him. Her mission is she has a little notepad with all the words that she needs him to say that she is ticking off one by one as she manages to get them up close and on tape. The problem is he's saying some of them with his mouth full and he's <laughs> he doesn't want to say other ones. And it's just, it's a rough go for her for a while. While she is busy doing that, we are intercutting back to her place where the gang is practicing with the next technological gadget they're going to have to overcome besides the tape, which is the motion sensor that they know is in Cosmo's office. It can sense motion. It can sense body temperature. It's a bad mother that they've got to figure <laughs> out how to get around. And there's really only two ways to do that. And this is, by the way, top of the line 1992. This was a big deal. So the two ways that they know they can defeat this thing is either one, They've got to wrap Martin. Yeah, they got to wrap Marty in a neoprene suit to contain his body temperature. The problem is that it'll suffocate him to death before he's done. (laughs) Or the other thing that they have to do, which ends up being the only thing they can do, is he's going to have to move no faster than two inches per second through this office or else he'll set off the motion sensors. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, they have to raise the temperature in the room to body temperature to 98.7 so that there's no temperature differential and the sensors won't go off. So he's got these two impossible things that have to happen for him to get into the machine. And Mother has been kind enough to bring Marty a duplicate answering machine. Yeah, I just thought you might want to practice with it. (laughs) Very kind. 
mind. Back at the restaurant, it's the end of the night. The Chinese restaurant uh, crew is trying to vacuum and clean up, and they're yelling at them to get out. But they can't go yet, and so Liz still needs one last word. She has everything else that she needs to pinpoint for the voice recognition system, but she doesn't have the word passport. The impossible word to get him to say in normal conversation. And so to get it out of him, she drags him back into the booth and says, oh, talk to me some more. Tell me, do you like to travel? Yeah, I guess I do. I don't know. You know, Werner, you have a wonderful voice. (laughs) He has the worst voice in the whole wide world. But you have a wonderful voice. And there's this word I always love hearing people with wonderful voices say, would you say it for me? It's the word passport. And he just goes, passport? Oh, oh my God. It's the great... You know, he'll do anything at yeah. this point to finish the date in the right way. Right. And so he says passport. She gets it on tape. Everything is done. It looks like Liz is going to escape. And she's like, let's get the check. You're right. They want us to go. And he traps her a bit and asks her to breakfast. Yeah, of course. I'll Yeah, I'll have breakfast with you. Okay. To which we get to finish the date with, you know, we said this was an uncomfortable date. Here is where it gets the most uncomfortable with Werner's line. Should I phone you or nudge you? Ugh. Now that we have Werner on tape, now that we have figured out how to get past the sensors in Cosmo's office with all of the machinations that that is going to take to do, now it is time for really the first caper in this film. An actual break-in, because the first break-in was a literal job for this company of sneakers. They're at Playtronics. Whistler has cut together Werner's voice on tape saying the right phrase, which anyone who is a fan of sneakers, and there are some very hardcore fans of sneakers, knows not just the words in this, but the inflection as well. Would you like to do the honors? Hello, my name is Werner Brandis. My voice is my passport. Verify me. That is what they get. It's funny. Just watch the movie. Just watch the movie. It's great. So this is the phrase that they now, this sort of jumbled, mashed together phrase that they have on tape, but they think it's good enough to beat the censor. To make things work at Playtronics for them to even get Marty to the censor, there's a little bit of distraction. Carl is playing a gardener that comes in and asks to use the bathroom. While he's in the bathroom, he climbs into the ceiling and makes his way up into the building. Dan Aykroyd is out on the lawn now pretending to be Carl. This is my one beef. Who can confuse the body shape of River Phoenix and Dan Aykroyd? They are two very different people. So, no. There's a large suspension of disbelief (laughs) on that one, I think. Come on. So Carl's job in climbing through the ceiling is he makes his way to the HVAC system, wherever that may be, Mm -hmm. clips his little gear onto it and starts to raise the temperature in Cosmo's office. Because we got to get to that 98. Got to get to 98.7. Yeah, we're going from a nice, you know, whatever it is, 65 degrees or whatever. We got to get it up to 98.7. That's going to take a few minutes. Liz has been coerced into going over to Werner's house. They're having dinner. He's making chicken or whatever. And she's there for one reason, Mm -hmm. and that is to get his pass card out of his wallet. Because to break in or really just to even get into any of the offices, he needs his pass card and then also that voice recognition element. So, you know, she has to put up with his nonsense, but manages to sneak out his security badge, hand it out the window to mother. Mother takes it back over to Playtronics and we're able to give it to Marty. Marty uses it to enter the building as an employee and to get a patch put onto the security cameras so that Kreese and Mother, who are back in the van, can watch everything that's happening. Yeah. At Werner's office, Marty uses the tape that they have made to get through the door. Almost doesn't. Plays it at the wrong speed. Then the computer says, please speak more slowly. And uh-huh. It's ridiculous. It's fantastic. 
He manages to get into the office by playing it at the right speed. Once he's in the office, he manages to climb into the air vent that is in Werner's office and climb over to the one that drops down into Cosmo's office. Cut back to Liz back at Werner's place, still suffering. Um, (laughs) Werner is showing her his latest design. He makes toys. He makes voice-activated toys. He's got this little dog that he can clap his hands and the dog will play dead and other things. And oh, isn't that cute? She excuses herself to go make a phone call, which we She's are She's starting to get nervous. Mm-hmm. Really nervous because she hasn't heard how the caper is going. She hasn't received any response and it's going long. It's going late. He, in describing where the bedroom is, tells her to walk straight forward. The voice-activated dog takes that as a command. <laughs> walks forward and knocks her purse off the table. You would have thought that she would have brought her purse, but that's just me. She's worried. Yeah. But in knocking her purse off the table, it knocks her wallet out of her purse. He picks her purse up to put it back on the table and notices an ID that does not say Doris. Don't look through a lady's stuff. (laughs) Everyone knows that's not okay. So he's got a Doris that's not a Doris in his house. And Even this dolt starts to put two and two together, that he's being played. And so he appears in the doorway where she's making her phone call and says, let's go take a ride. This gets us back then, I guess, cutting back to Cosmo's office, where Marty has now dropped down through the ceiling gently. They've checked the temperature. Temperature's fine. He's into the room and off he goes moving like a snail across this room toward the desk where the little black box is that he needs. This is the funniest thing to me because (laughs) this is the big action set piece of the caper. And unlike every other caper movie in existence, it's in slow motion, not in fast motion. I think that is brilliant because you're right. Normally it's a you get in, get out. He literally cannot do that here. And at one point they actually say, you know, he's kind of running out of time and they say, like, can you pick up the speed a little bit? And he just kind of goes, ugh, because he cannot. He can't go any faster than, what is it, two Two inches inches per per second. second. Yeah. It adds to the tension even though he's barely moving because of the intercutting. And what's happening in the intercutting is that Werner has dragged Liz, who he knows as Doris, to the company, proclaims, this person is trying to steal something from me. I think there's something going on. We need to check my office. Cosmo is there and says, all right, let's check his office. And so he leads everybody up the staircase to Werner's office. They go inside. They look around. Well, Werner, anything missing? Anything awry? And of course, nothing is missing. Nothing is awry. It looks like Werner has been kind of being a nut. While they are getting ready to go, it looks like everything's going to be totally fine. And she's playing it off well. Yeah. Yeah, I think, is it Cosmo who says, I'm I'm sorry, sorry. about the trouble? And she says, I'm not as sorry as I am. And so she's trying to, you know, be very casual and play it off. She turns to Cosmo and says, this is the last time I go on a computer date. Something like that. It's the wrong thing to say. She's trying to be nonchalant. She's trying to... to she's trying to be funny. Trying to be funny. And it's the wrong thing to say because that trips Cosmo's radar. Wait a minute. A computer matched her with him? I don't don't think think so. so. Then he pauses and goes, Marty. Then he realizes, okay, what's Marty after? Marty's after that box. And so immediately he wheels around, goes to his office next door, runs inside. Why is it so hot in here? Mm -hmm. And runs to the desk to see where the box was. And the box is gone. Marty has broken in. He has taken the box. But now he's got to break out. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? 
Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts, yes, I said thefts, of the Mona Lisa, how the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. Hey, good world. You're back listening to Subgenre. I am your host, Josh Dassel. I am here with Jennifer Dassel, my wife, who has been kind enough to sit down and talk about this movie, Sneakers, with us. How are we doing, Jen? Doing great. And by the way, it's not kindness. I will talk about this movie to everyone, anywhere, at any time. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're talking about one of our favorite movies here in season two, I figured it's as good a time as any to introduce a brand new segment, and it's called Line Please. Line, please. Cut. Quite honestly, I created this segment specifically for this movie because, yes, amongst ourselves, but I feel like just generally, Sneakers is one of the more quotable films I have ever seen. So I'm going to toss it over the fence to you, first off, and ask, out of all of the many quotable things in Sneakers, do you have a favorite one that rises to the top? Oh, gosh. I think the one I probably quote most often just because it's a word that comes up most often in daily life is disaster. And just the weirdness of Ben Kingsley's delivery where he says disaster or whatever. Disaster. I feel like I say that all the time. And that is, of course, a sneakers quote. But it's not obvious, I think, to anybody who doesn't know the movie. Besides that, I probably would also just go with the big, long, hello, my name is Warner Brandis. It's not not the most useful line in everyday life, <laughs> I guess. It has not come up yet in conversation, but it might. There's a few that stick out to me. Now, I'm not going to say that this one is my favorite. I think I'll lead up to my favorite. But the one that sticks out to me that really is the theme of the movie to some degree is too many secrets. I guess, does anyone ever say... The FBI agent guy who's not the FBI agent guy. Right. That guy says too many secrets. Yeah. And we also see it in the, the Scrabble letters. Right. Of course, pain, try aspirin. We say that a lot whenever we're not not feeling our best. Which then, of course, morphs into pain, try prison. I think be a beacon. Also, oh, be a beacon. 100%. Very, very good one. I also think anytime I hear about Mexico City, I can't help but think about <laughs> your little love jaunt to Mexico City. So that definitely also is part of it. Dr. Rishkoff and that scene gives us, that scene and I guess the one before, it gives us several lines, including one of my favorites. So you've got, of course, that one that was the be a beacon. Uh, you have I leave message here on service, but, but you, you do, do not call. call. Yeah. It's not a fantastically written line, but for some reason, I guess because it's played over and over, it rings as a line that I remember from the film. It's iconic because of the way that it's played. Yeah. And because it's a turning point in the movie, really, like that moment where it becomes this clue. Exactly. And Dr. Uh, Rishkoff mm-hmm. uh, gives us one more, which is, I'll give you something to work, work baby. baby. <laughs> 
would love to know if there are other sneaker people out there. Sneakerheads? Sneakerheads. I mean, that's what you call the shoe kind of people. But like, I would love to know what other people love in terms of their quotes from this movie. So all of those, yes, wonderful. Love them. They're memorable to us. I think most of the people who are sneakerheads are probably going to pick those out and say, yeah, these are the great ones. The two that we are missing, I think, are give me the box, Maddie. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. 100%. Which is uh, Ben Kingsley doing Uh his whatever voice it is that Ben Kingsley is doing. No one knows. And then my favorite, which is no one else's favorite, I don't think. But the line is really just half a line because you only hear half of it. And it's delivered by Dr. Gunther Janik, mm-hmm. who says, using the Arten map, we might induce homomorphisms. homomorphisms. Yes, that's true. <laughs> don't really have a background in I don't know. Maps, so. I don't care. It's just a, a really interesting line. It's a, it's a great word, too. Homomorphisms. Homomorphisms. Okay. Love so, it. So, too many secrets. I uh, leave message here on service, but you do not call. Be a beacon. Give me the box, Maddie. That's been line, please. I don't know how good that was, but it was fun. (laughs) It was really fun. This is the home stretch of sneakers. We left off before the break at the end of the break in to Playtronics toys. Now it's time for the breakout because we left with Ben Kingsley's character going over, opening the box, seeing that he has been had and that the whole answering machine has been taken. And Boom, we are on high alert as the guys try to get out. And literal alarms going off at this point. Big lights, guys with guns running from everywhere. It's a, what do you call it, four alarm fire. Where are those guys stationed? That's a good question. And they disappear after a while. Yeah. All of these guys yeah. that were there before eventually just evaporate. And no one really talks about That's where they true. went. You've got the soldiers, I guess we'll call them, I don't know, guards, breaking into the crawl spaces to search for Marty. He's somewhere up in the ceiling. They find the security camera tap that Whistler and Crease and Carl and everybody have been watching and are and rip it out so we no longer have eyes on everything that's going on. And one of the people that's out there knocking in the ceiling tiles trying to find Marty is Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace. He is terrifying in this moment. Like, he is scary because he's got that big old gun and you just don't want to mess with that guy. Drop ceiling tile by drop ceiling Mm -hmm. tile. He's cock, cock, boom, firing the shotgun through one. Cock, cock, boom, firing it through the next one until he's right about to fire through the one where Marty is and Cosmo over the intercom stops him just in time. Of course, perfect timing. I don't know how he didn't hit him. I mean, (laughs) yeah, he's got really good aim. He's a professional. (laughs) Fine, whatever. Cosmo's on the intercom for two reasons. One is to tell Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace to stop shooting. And number two is to tell Marty that he has Liz. He's captured Liz and he has her. She's beautiful, Marty. Oh, yeah. And so Marty knows immediately what's going on. Cosmo uses this as a moment to say, you got to come down. you got to give yourself up. You have to trust me. Mm-hmm. Here comes that trust line again. And Marty only has to think about it for a second or two because it's Liz. What else is he going to do? He can't leave her. And so he gives up. This brings him into a quick reunion with Liz in Cosmo's fancy office again. Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> And he gives the black box back to Cosmo Mm -hmm. and says, all right, you win. Here you go. Take the stupid box. And as he is giving the box back, Marty suddenly has this moment of, wait a minute, things don't feel right here and says, wait, we had a deal. And Cosmo taking the box kind of shakes his head and goes, 
you're right. I cannot kill my friend. Because he says that beforehand when he's talking on the intercom. He, he kind of goes, I cannot kill my friend. I cannot. It's like such a dramatic thing that he says. But so then, in that moment, he repeats it. Yeah. I cannot kill my friend. And then turns to the guys beside him and goes, kill my friend. Oh, it's so cold. That's another line. We should have talked that's about true. that line. Kill my friend. It feels like that's the moment where everything is going to go down and Marty's going to get killed and Liz is going to get killed. Well, of course they're not. It's an adventure movie, but how are they going to get out of this one? Guys yeah. with guns got the drop on them. Cosmo leaves. He leaves the scene. And this is, you know, one of those silly action movie tropes of the villain who talks too much. Yeah. You know, or or the Bond villain who leaves James Bond alone and says, ah, you'll, you'll be dead in a few seconds. I've got to go do other things. He's trusting that the dirty work will be done for him, yeah. period. And both of those happen at the same time here because mm-hmm. Cosmo leaves the room trusting that his goons are going to do the job. Yeah. The goons start talking <laughs> and can't seem to stop themselves from explaining everything that's going to go on. And Marty says to them, you didn't think I was going to let you have this box, did you? Yeah. What? Carl now calls for Carl. Carl leaps through the ceiling, Ah! comes flying down through the ceiling tiles in just the right spot to tackle these guards, of course. Of course. And Marty gets the chance to knock Buddy Weber, Buddy Wallace out. Good. The same way that Buddy did to him a couple of times in the back of the car. There is some comeuppance. So they've managed to escape from Cosmo's office. Him and Liz and Carl. And now what they have to do is they have to escape the building. Yeah. And so what do you do when you're trying to escape a building? Do you go down and out the front door in a way that would make sense? No. Not here. No, No, you don't. You climb up to the roof and kind of trap yourself on the roof to some degree. But it looks cool. It looks cool. Lots of spotlights, lots of searchlights. And the explanation, it seems here, the reason they went to the roof is because they have to get line of sight of Crease and Mother and Whistler, who are all still hanging out in the bread truck somewhere up on the hill. Whistler's in the back. Of course, he's back there with his headset on in the dark, listening to things that are going on. The other two are up front. And right about then, they are captured by a couple of these unnamed guards from Playtronics. Right. They're both walked out in front of the truck and held at gunpoint. The guards don't really search the back. Don't search the truck at all, I guess. They just take the two guys out the front. Never think to look in the back of the truck where Whistler is. And that leaves him to remain undiscovered in the back. He quiets himself down and calls on the radio to Marty and says, they've got him. Like, what are we going to do? And Marty basically says, like, well, now it's up to you because they are indisposed. So you are going to have to help out and bring the rescue van to rescue me. Yeah. Remembering, of course, that Whistler is a blind guy. I've heard that. Yeah. It's kind of his major character trait. And again, we have a moment of Whistler coming to save the day. Yeah. The difference here is that Whistler is the actor, but Whistler is not the initiator. On the other ones where he said, oh, tell me what it sounds like and where Whistler finds the code in the box at the party, Whistler is initiating that. Here, he is the method by which things are happening, but he is actually being guided from the rooftop through the headset by Marty. And it's also not him using his like savant talents to do this. You know, it's him working with something that he's not good at, obviously, driving. And so I think that makes it a little better in some ways. It's not that deus ex machina thing that you were talking about. So Marty is able to talk Whistler into sitting in the front driver's seat, which he really doesn't want to do. Whistler has to sneak up there without being heard or seen by these guards who have the drop on Crease and Mother. He even has to ask about the gear shift because there's a column shift on this thing. (laughs) Like, where is drive on this thing? Oh, 
it's two down. Okay, yeah. I got two down. And so as he is preparing to do this, I think it's Crease who gets a look at what is about to happen, understands what is about to happen. And he needs uh, a distraction to formulate a distraction, creates a distraction. That's Mm -hmm. right. And the distraction that he creates is actually telling mother the answer to a secret, which was why he was let go from the CIA, which has sort of been this big mystery from the beginning. You know, what did I ever tell you why I was let go from the CIA? Yeah. And all he says is, it's my temper. And boom, smacks the guys that are holding him hostage, takes away the guns, and Whistler is free to take off. Pulls the gear shift two down, steps on the gas. The truck goes bouncing over medians and parking spaces and is just hell-bent for getting to the building where Marty and the rest are holed up on the roof. Can we just back up for a moment and talk about how amazing Crease is in that moment where he just bashes those guys with the gun? It's completely badass, and he looks great. Just look like a guy that you do not want to mess with and now we understand why maybe he was let go from the CIA. I also love that they do sneak in a little line right as they're getting pulled out by the guards from the truck where you can tell that at least one of the guards is a serious racist because he calls him Midnight. Yeah. And you just see his face as he turns slowly and you know like you pissed off the wrong guy. And so he's knocked the crap out of this guy. Whistler's speeding across the parking lot. Marty is up on this well-lit roof guiding him go a little bit left go a little bit right and towards the end there's going to be a gentle slope oh great a gentle (laughs) slope careens down this 90 degree drop off or whatever until he's down and comes to a stop by smacking into the front of the building which stops the truck (laughs) and he's there to rescue everyone yeah so everybody's climbing off the roof you know there goes liz there goes uh carl it looks like all is great and they're going to get away and marty starts to take his step off the ladder when who should be there but cosmo of course and cosmo is not there by himself cosmo is there with a big gun which he points directly at marty and gives another line, which I, we probably should have talked about in the in our line please segment that is often quoted by us, which is... Just give me the box, Marty. Just give me the box, Marty. M-A-H-H-H-T-Y. Marty. Yeah. This brings Marty back up on the roof. They sort of finally have this, basically a talk. Like they, yeah, they have kind of a re- heart to heart. And this is where Cosmo kind of explains to Marty why he's doing what he's doing. Like he gave explanations early on. Oh, I work for the mob. Oh, I think I could crash the whole system. Oh, I think I, all of that, which was never really super satisfying. And you could never really tell whether to believe him. Yeah. And here, I think you can believe him because it feels a little desperate. I mean, Marty basically finally gives in, or at least it appears to us that he's giving in. He hands back again the box to Cosmo, right? Well, yeah, but let's talk about what Cosmo says. Yeah. Cosmo says to him, you started with me on this journey. Oh, yeah. We could rule this place because the world is run by little ones Ones and and zeros zeros. and it's all about who controls the information. And here's the villain laying out his reasoning for everything that he's doing, which essentially to me boils down to power. And that he's inviting his friend to be on that. And I think before, you know, he gives this moment to the goons where he says, kill my friend. And so you feel like he wants him out of the way. This is the first time it feels like he wants him in on the bigger project, maybe. Cosmo is talking about being in power. Cosmo is talking about this being a journey. And Marty corrects him and says, cause it wasn't a journey. It was a prank to Marty. You know, he was it was for laughs like he was doing something good, but it was it wasn't this 
life-changing thing in that way. It wasn't missional, I guess. Yeah. They were in college. They were super young. They were just having fun with this, seeing what they could get away with. And Cosmo is trying to threaten Marty in this, you know, you give me the box right now or I will kill you right right now. Mm -hmm. And finally, Marty's just like, you know what? Fine. And grabs it off of his knapsack and takes it out and hands it to Cosmo and says, you want this so bad, you take it. You know, I don't want it. I don't want it. I hadn't really thought about that before, but that's actually a really nice line, I think, from Marty, because it's not a put on. No, he really doesn't want it. He really doesn't want He didn't want it to begin with. He didn't yeah. go seeking it out. It sought him out. Totally. And he kind of got trapped into getting it. Because he wanted to protect his name, protect himself, and then ultimately protect his gang, including Liz. He had no choice but to be involved all the way through this thing. And so it's been this power struggle all the way through with someone who doesn't want it but has to go get it and somebody who does want it and is trying to take control of it. So you've got mm-hmm. this battle between the two. So it feels like you've got two people who maybe are aggressors toward one another, I guess. But in the end, they aren't. Yeah. And I think that comes through really in how Cosmo starts to talk at the end of this. This is a part, a scene that I think is really kind of sad. It's very poignant to me. And I have to give all the credit, I think, to Ben Kingsley's delivery here, because right as Marty is like, great, here's the box, handed it over. He's getting ready to leave and turning around. And you just hear Cosmo say, don't go. And it is so sad because he really means it. He really doesn't want him to leave. He has no one. And I think that's really interesting because I think you have the dichotomy of Marty and Cosmo, and they are on opposite ends. We have Marty who has his group of friends. He has this buddy group that he's tight with, a woman that he loves. Cosmo has his goons, but they're not friends, right? Right. Cosmo looks like he doesn't have anybody. And that moment where he sees this friend from back in the day heading away, he's lonely and he's sad. It's very, very sweet and sad. And he tries that line in two different ways. Mm -hmm. He starts with a command, gun to Marty, don't go. Marty starts to go. Yeah. And that's when he turns it the other way. And we get really, like you said, sort of the poignancy and the heart of it where it's don't go. And Marty just reminds Cosmo, look, if you want to pull the trigger and you want to kill me, you do it. No one else can do it. There's no one else here. Remember all those guards that were chasing us everywhere? Apparently they've evaporated and gone nowhere. (laughs) But if you're going to kill somebody... You're going to have to do it and no one else. And to this point, Cosmo has relied on other people to do his dirty work. Right. And in the end, he can't do it. And I think Marty knew that all along, right? That's why he's able to walk away. Yeah. He knows he's not going to shoot me. He's going to let me leave. And ultimately, Cosmo has no choice. He can't pull the trigger. He is a coward that way in the end. He does care for his friend, I think lets Marty go, but he is left with his prize, which maybe feels a little empty at that point, but he is left with the answering machine that Marty has given to him. Marty disappears, he's gone, and Cosmo has his moment to savor what he has. It's a little empty. That's an interesting way to put it, I think. When he opens the answering machine and looks inside, there's nothing in it. Yeah. It is the fake answering machine that mother had given to Marty way back when, when they were at Liz's apartment as a way to practice. Marty had brought it with him and has handed it over as the real thing. We had the break in. We had the break out. Now it's time for the celebration, which everybody 
everybody gets back to the office. Everybody's in a great mood. They come in, they unlock the door, they flip on the lights and immediately find themselves again right at barrel point of a bunch of semi-automatic weapons. Mm -hmm. This time it's real government people. Yes. It's not fake government people like it's been throughout the whole movie. They got badges. They got guns. This is real government. And to prove that it's real government, stepping out of the shadows is a voice that we remember from the telephone earlier when they had called Fort Meade. It is Bernard Abbott, Mr. Abbott, as played by Mr. Abbott, James Earl Jones, as played by James Earl Jones, of course. Best voice in the world. Everybody knows that. Yes. So, you know, we've got James Earl Jones, who Phil Alden Robinson had worked with on Field of Dreams, bringing him back for this little cameo. I like this. I mean, obviously now, probably even back then, like you could tell James Earl Jones's voice. James Earl Jones was Darth Vader. There's right. no mistaking that voice on the phone. But it is kind of a fun moment to see him physically walk out of the shadows and we get to see a cameo by him. And so he's there to collect the box. The real he, box. The real finally. box. He knows that Marty has done this, obviously. He's come to get it from him. Marty takes the moment to question why he wants the box. He said, you're you're NSA, right? Yes, I'm NSA. Why does NSA want this box? He says, I keep thinking back to something that Gregor had told me uh, before, which is that Russian codes and American codes are based on very different systems. And mm. so, you know, this box is really worthless for reading Russian codes. And we got to remember this was back in 90. This is 93. 93. Right. So the Soviet Union was down, but the. But uh, barely, really. But, but barely. Only a few years. And you had the Commonwealth of States, and there's still, you know, remnants of, you know, KGB esque stuff going on. Everybody's still spying on everybody. Yeah. And that would have been NSA's focus at the time. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he says, well, why do you want this? Can't listen to the Russians with it. Hmm. Who can we listen to? Oh, wait. You could listen to, and the gang starts to chime in, you know, you could open the FBI's mail. Uh-huh. Uh, you could check on the White House. You could, basically telling them, it sounds to me like you're trying to spy on the other agencies and do some domestic stuff, which sounds a little shady. Wow. Who could imagine something like that happening? You know? What fiction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so Abbott realizes in that moment, okay, He's in a corner. Mm-hmm. He needs this box. He really wants this box, but he's going to have to give something for it. And so he says, okay, Bishop, what do you want? And Marty says, I want to clear up my record. I want my life back. Yeah, his Which name. is the whole reason he went to yeah, do this thing in the first place. The whole background. It's that easy for him. If you want this box back, you clean up my record, you give me my life back, and then we have a deal. Mm-hmm. And Abbott says, okay, done. Give me the box. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> from the side. We got to remember, Marty's not the only one that participated in this no. and put his neck on the line. He's the leader of the group, but there's still a group. The person who steps forward with the is Crease, mm-hmm. who steps in and says, you will buy me X amount of round trip tickets to Europe. And Marty makes sure to remind him and Tahiti. Tahiti and is Tahiti. not in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and you get Tahiti is not in Europe. Bernard Abbott trying to argue the Which point. Is- Fact, you know, it's fine. But yes, give him geography lessons later. Right now, <laughs> you're going to agree to all these airline tickets and Crease will let you leave with the box. Okay, fine. We'll buy the airline tickets. Let's now, go. Oh, may I have the box, please? Nope, because who's standing in line next but Mother? Mother has a desire and a need, which she has mentioned before. It's that Winnebago. It's the Winnebago. So we're hearkening back to that kind of midpoint of the movie when they are all celebrating that first party where they're talking about what they will do with their $100,000. 
that they're splitting six ways. And remember, this movie, like a lot of other heist movies, is full of planting and payoff. Yeah, it is. And usually planting and payoff is, you know, clues that help you get the diamond or whatever at the end or figure out who the master thief was. In this case, the, the planting and payoff was the motivation Yeah. Of everybody here. It's little character details that make it more interesting and more fun. Yeah. So mother wants a Winnebago. Mm -hmm. Big kitchen, waterbed. Big kitchen. Burgundy interior. Who's next? I think it might be... It's Carl. Carl. Yeah. This is very cute. We got to remember who Carl is. Carl is River Phoenix. Yeah. He's the youngest member of the crew. Right. He's a little socially awkward. Little is probably not the right word. He's very socially awkward. And so he turns to one of the agents who happens to be a lovely blonde lady with her hair pulled back in a ponytail, fairly young. And he says, the young lady with the Uzi, I just want her phone number. Mm -hmm. It's real cute and kind of gross also at the same time. (laughs) But it charms her. And she basically moves forward and says, hold on a second. You're basically blackmailing right now and you can ask for anything, but you want my phone number? And he says, yeah. It's like totally, completely serious And Marty's trying to remind him, dude, this This is the brass ring. This is the brass ring. (laughs) This is it. Like, cash your check right now. This is your one shot. What do you want? And honestly and truly, what he wants is this girl's phone number. Yeah. That's worth the world to him. And so she's sitting there pointing a gun at him, but then smiles and says, like, blah, blah, blah. Here's my number. And it's a real number, by the way. It's not a 555. So have you you ever called it? I haven't. Let's call it after this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies to, like, the random Chinese restaurant I'm about to call and ask for Lady with the Uzi. It's fine. We'll order something. Okay. The final person in the boys group here who gets asked for their desire is Whistler. And Whistler, of course, as he has said before, And says again, what he wants is peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And this, more than anything, angers Bernard Abbott. And this is another one of those amazing lines in the movie, by the way. Bernard Abbott speaks up with, we are the United States government. We don't do that sort of thing. (laughs) So good. And Marty tells him, you know, this this is Whistler. You're just just going to have to try. Fine. (sighs) And so Abbott figures, oh, what the hell? I know how this works now. And turns to Liz and says, what about you? This what is, would you like? Oh, my gosh. I love this so much. Can I talk about how much I love Mary McDonnell in this movie? Oh, yeah. Period. I think she has a lot of the best lines, the best scenes. She is just such a superstar in this movie. And, yeah, he asks her and she just goes, oh, I'm fine. I don't want to be involved in this. <laughs> it's great. And, of course, after being blackmailed with all of these really interesting character demands, finally, Abbott says, OK, you got to give me the box now, too. And Marty does. And Marty hands over the the real answering machine. You know, he's left the fake answering machine up with Cosmo. He hands over the real answering machine to Abbott and tells him, you know, it never worked. Mm. To which Abbott replies, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I have it. And that's what's important. Yeah. And leaves. Now, of course, this is a lie. We know that it works. We've seen it work at the party. And the guys remind him of this, right? And I think maybe it's Liz that reminds him of it and says, just because you said it was broken, can't he just take it and hook it up and do all these terrible things with it? And Marty uh, gives his, you know, Robert Redfordy smile mm-hmm. and holds up the circuit board from inside. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he did give them one that doesn't work, and it doesn't work because he made it not work. He planned ahead. That could be the end of our movie. But it it's could. Not. But it's not because we get this nice little coda 
at the end after we've gone on our mission and everybody's gotten what they wanted and everybody's living happily ever after. And so we get, we get a news report at the end, which tells us that there is a problem currently with the Republican National Committee, that it is bankrupt. And, and they it's, have no idea how it happened. No idea where their money went. They had a lot of money yesterday, but now they have no money anymore. <laughs> the assumption being that our guys have had a little something to do with that, with the circuitry that they now have in their possession. But the good news is that a lot of other agencies, Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Negro College Fund, among them, all received generous donations from, from anonymous, anonymous donors. donors. <laughs> it's a great book into the film. It's something that wraps it up and leaves you feeling positive, I think, at the end of this movie that's had a lot of ups and downs and action yeah. and, you know, sadness and other things. Couple that with the great music that finishes this thing off, and you have a pretty strong end to a movie, I think. It's the kind of movie you would walk out of the theater and be like, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was. And that means it's time for rave, rental, or refund. This is our final word, our final opinion on the film that we've been talking about, Sneakers from 1993 or 2. I don't know. Uh, Whatever it is. I forgot. <laughs> it's it's been so long since the beginning of this thing. <laughs> but let's let's give our final opinion on this thing. Is it a rave? Is it the best thing since sliced bread? Is it a rental? Ah, we'll wait. You know, gets a B or a C on the scale, or is it a refund? Man, this thing failed. Sneakers. What do you think? It's a rave for me. Of course it is. I mean, how could it not be? It's just fun. It's entertaining. It's everything I really want from a movie. This is a popcorn movie in the best way possible. In the best way possible. It's got everything. So it's a rave from you. Of course it's a rave from me. It this better is, be or else we'll have a problem. We would have a problem. Yeah, yeah, no, this is one of my favorite movies, period. And I think it was one of those movies that when we were first dating a million years ago, yeah. when we discovered that both of us liked this movie, it was one of those like oh, amazing moments because, as we know, this movie is a cult classic in many ways, and it has a very sincere and deep community of people who love it. But this is not the norm for people to say, yes, sneakers. So it's always exciting when you find somebody who has such excitement and enthusiasm for this movie. And it was exciting when we found that in one another. We were sneaker heads who found one another. Aww. <laughs> so cute. Gross. I've enjoyed doing this. I've enjoyed having the time to just sit and talk about sneakers. Like you said, we would do that anyway, but mm -hmm. being able to do it in a way where we can share our love of this film with all the listeners in the good world, <laughs> I, it's a joy. Hopefully people understand why I chose so strongly to talk about this one as opposed to The Thomas Crown Affair, which is also wonderful and amazing. And I felt bad not choosing the art movie because I'm an art person, but this one just has my heart. But you got a chance, and this gives us a good yeah. a good time to remind everybody that uh, we did release some extra content. Our very first pickup shot of season two that we released not very long ago is you getting to talk a little bit about the Thomas Crown Affair, specifically the art in that film. So if you have not listened to episode number one, please do so. If you haven't listened to the extra content, the pickup shot uh, with Jennifer Dassel talking about Thomas Crown Affair, please do so. And uh, we're so glad that you listened to this episode about sneakers. 
if anybody has listened to anything that I talk about, they have heard about you and what you do. But plug yourself. Where can people find you? Art Curious Podcast. You can go to artcuriouspodcast.com and you can listen to some interesting, unexpected, slightly odd and strangely wonderful stories from art history. Season 11 is coming soon. Very, very, very soon. And I also have a book called Art Curious. Came out with Penguin. And uh, yeah, lots of other good stuff on the agenda coming up for this year. Again, thank you for sitting down. It's been fun. I hope you've had a good time. 100%. I totally did. Thank you. I love you. Let's do it again. Okay. I love you too. Bye. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, podcast and author, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. If you love this show and need some more, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you choose to listen. And if you can, leave us a five-star review. Trust me when I say it is massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation from your account, not others. You'll find the link to do it, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes from season one at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. Come back soon for our next episode of Subgenre Season 2 and more charming thief movies. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki. Oh.